It was the voice of a courageous explorer, a man dedicated to the pursuit of man's knowledge and the expansion of his horizons. Good morning. Here is Nathan Ivey. Mr. Ivy know the show must go on. As far as Cincinnati, man, I put on. Tools made another flame beat for me to cook on. Raised arms, close this year, too strong. Team NI, chop it up at the chop shop. Top notch with the king flow, the hot shot. Cops watching, listen to the real. Jumping like hopscotch, nobody harder than, oh, no. Think not, not only citywide. But nationwide, uh, superlatives keep it locked like the Haitian guys. Uh, Put the truth in the airwaves, we talk about it. Uh, Brand new like the tip plates, let's be about it. Uh, Who got the info by the AM? John O.B. the rapper got them jamming when they play him. Play him. Staying in my lane, they ain't got an okay him. him. Who the host with the scoop? Yeah, they gon' say him. Ivy, so superlative like a bag of drippos. Know you wear the princess, Cincinnati red tag. One time with my people at. And I where my people at It's the 513, yeah, you know the flow What's the word, Nate? Let them know the show One time where my people at Team and I where my people at Broadcasting live from Cincinnati, Ohio Here's the king of superlative flows Nathan Ivey Morning shoppers, welcome back. Currently 710 a.m. in the Queen City. And today is Thursday, March 9th, 2017. Welcome back to the last honest place in Cincinnati, Ohio. Perhaps the state of Ohio. Hell, perhaps the country. The Nathan Ivy Show. Where nothing is funnier than the truth. Men are allowed to be men. I am man. And of course, uh, lames get their planes shot down by John McCain. Shout out to the great uh, Jay Electronica. Good morning, shoppers. How are you? Uh, at 8 a.m. in less than an hour, I'm scheduled to be joined by a city council member. I believe she's still president pro temp. And she wants to be the next mayor of city of Cincinnati. That's Yvette Simpson. That's at 8 a.m. Stick around for that conversation. If not, check out the podcast at www.nathanivey.com. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be with you. Numerous things to discuss. Again, I want to talk about local politics. I want to get your thoughts about what should be the issues uh, for Cincinnati's mayor. If you want to line up some questions, comments, uh, line them up. I'll try to read as many of your comments, uh, you know, when we get Yvette on the line. And um, what I'm hoping is that, you know, we can just get a better understanding of who Yvette is, who Miss Simpson is. And what she'd like to do for the city of Cincinnati. Got to keep an eye on the ball. 
And I've been receiving numerous uh, messages, primarily through Facebook, in anticipation for the conversation. So that's good stuff. Uh, again, good morning, Choppers. How are you? Great to be with you. You know, I watched a very interesting show over the weekend. I mean, overnight. And I want to share it with you. It's on MSNBC. It's a show called The Deed. D-E-E-D. The Deed. And the basic premise of the show is you've got this guy who's an entrepreneur. He's like made millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, if not more than that in the real estate game. And people contact him who are trying to flip houses or properties or things, developments, and they've just, maybe it's their first time, second time, and they've gotten in over over their head. He swoops in, in some cases provides some capital, but provides a lot of uh, mentorship. It's a very interesting, it's a brand new show. I think they're only on their second episode. Uh, maybe second or third episode. I got hip to it last night. But there's a there was a moral in last night's show. And even if you didn't hear the show at all, once I explain it to you, uh, you, I think you'll agree with me, the moral in that story. But stick around for that. I'll share that with you in just a few minutes. Here is my number if you should decide to transform your brainwaves into radio talk waves. You know what? Not radio. Internet talk radio waves. Again, 513 Seven three seven one three four. That is my number. All I ask is that you open your mind before you open your mouth. <laughs> That's all I ask. Well, Barack Obama has weighed in. I guess he felt like he had to defend himself from the criticisms of the Trump administration. Well, you know, Donald Trump tweeted over the weekend. That's this past weekend that he. He just got information that Obama had him wiretapped, which is very, very odd. Because number one, the president does not, cannot, what should I say, if the president did do that, it would be illegal. Uh, But though a wiretap on an American citizen, uh, no, that's not what the president does. Uh, That's the courts. Uh, That's the Justice Department. So it begs the question, where the hell was Donald Trump getting this? The media has been spinning around for the, enli- the entire week trying to figure this out. All week long. And to this point, nobody has been able to find any evidence. But it's weird because not only can the president not uh, issue a wiretap on a private citizen, an American citizen. That's just not within the direct responsibility of the president, as I understand it. But let's say the Obama administration was wiretapping Trump Tower. I'm sorry, Trump Tower. Well, that would mean that the courts found enough evidence to set up a wiretap. Uh, So it's almost like did Donald Trump incriminate himself? That's a uh, he thinks differently. We'll put it that way. He thinks different. (laughs) We'll put it that way to put it very, very mildly. Uh, do me a favor, lock my number in if you're listening for the first time. That way, if uh, you should decide to give us a call one morning, it'll be uh, a button or two away. 513-873-7134. It's been quoted. And again, I like to preface things that way in Cincinnati and when in local media. It's been quoted that Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters made a comment after an inmate committed suicide. This was an inmate on Ohio's death row. So this is we're on all this is on us. I'll say it again. I do not believe in the death penalty in these days and times. I don't trust the American justice system to get it right, quite honestly. And when you're dealing with somebody's life, which is the like the the ultimate thing that the state can do. It's one thing to take your liberty. It's an entirely different thing to take your life. And see what a lot of people who resist my flow over the years will understand 
is that you might not be on death row, but I'll say this again, whether you're an inmate or, uh, you know, you're not an inmate, what the government can do to any individual citizen, they can do to all of us. They can do to all of us. What the government can do to an inmate behind bars, they can do to you in your home. Uh, don't think you're protected because you're you're not incarcerated. Most folks don't get that. They don't get it. Just yesterday, I gave you uh, the details of a new report that said that overwhelmingly black people are railroaded by the system that overwhelmingly the number of people who have been exonerated because they've been uh, wrongfully convicted are African-American. Well, how many people over the years have been wrongly convicted and they've been executed? So, you know, some of these people on death row, they may have confessed. They may have did just terrible things to children. They may have did terrible things to police officers. Hey, you might even say they deserve the death penalty, but I'll make this point again. Some get it, some don't. While these inmates, some of them may deserve the death penalty, we don't deserve the death penalty. We just don't get that. People get really arrogant. Oh, it could never happen to me. I'm not an inmate. You don't understand. You're an American citizen. What can be done to one American citizen can be done to all of us. Black, white, rich, poor, handicapped. Makes no difference. Makes no difference. Some people don't get that. Some people don't get that. 513-873-7134. I want to get your thoughts about everything that we're going to discuss today, including at 8 a.m. I'm scheduled to be joined by Yvette Simpson, and she was running to be the mayor of Cincinnati So any questions you may have, comments you may have, share them with me. If perhaps you can't stick around that long, but you can check out the podcast, here's what you can do. You can come into the chop shop, shoot up a, a, send me a text message. I will read it and then listen for Yvette's response. Pretty simple. Uh, Just yesterday, you had women all over the world all over the country, should I say, who were participating in, you know, a a day when women were saying, listen, what would you do without us? Here's a couple things I'll say about women in this country. It's a damn shame in 2016 that you could have a woman on a job working side by side with a man and she's getting paid less. That is a damn shame. Let us sink in. That is a damn shame. There's people out there who still don't believe that a woman should be a leader. Like I told you, I talked to a family member going back to like October of last year who, no, I take it back. It was right after the election. And he was just so happy that Hillary lost. I ain't want to follow no woman. You don't want to follow, but you'll follow a damn clown. Uh, Let's go to the phones. We'll take a quick phone call. Then we'll get to the choppers. Uh, Good morning, caller. How are you? Good morning, caller. How are you? We'll catch you. We'll catch up with you. We'll catch up with you. Here's the number again: five one three eight seven three seven one three four. If you decide to call in, great. Uh, until then, no! this is the chopper. Yeah, my favorite part of the show. Damn, the week is going so fast. The weekend will be here when tomorrow. Uh, but today, let's chop it up, shall we? Let me back up here. See. I see Tanika was first inside the chop shop. She writes, good morning, Nate, and the choppers. Followed by John. 
He's a great God disciple. He writes, uh, good morning. And I see Pat. How you doing, Pat? She writes, good morning, y'all. That's your top three. That's one, two, and three inside the Chop Shop for today, Thursday, March 9th, 2017. Sluggo writes, uh, top of the morning, everyone. X-Squad affiliate salute. How you doing, Sluggo? Good morning. Uh, Chuck writes, uh, good morning, Nate, and a Chop Shop. Good morning, Nate. Uh, Chuck. <laughs> Curtis writes, uh, morning, Chop Shop. Angela writes, morning. Cruther writes, good morning, good morning, good morning, Choppers. I think I got it all. Uh, Avery writes, good morning. Deanna writes, good morning. Charles writes, good morning, everyone. James writes, good morning, all. Miss D writes, greetings. Kush writes, good morning, Choppers. Dale writes, good morning. And what's beef when you got a family of choppers ready to bring that heat? Hashtag Biggie. 20. You know, <laughs> Tupac is killed. Biggie's killed. We don't know who killed him. After all these years, that's a damn shame. Speaking of beef, I'm reading that the beef, the feud... The Lyrical Decimation, if you will, by Remy Ma, The Verbal Assault. On Remy Ma, from Remy Ma to um, to Nicki Minaj, is over. Uh, Nicki Minaj, I don't know if she tweeted this, but it was reported that she said, I'm not, I'm not clapping back with no, Nicki Minaj reportedly said, I'm not clacking, clapping back with no Remy Ma. Remy Ma goes on, I believe it's a, a podcast that the folks over at Bossip.com do. I don't recall the title. And she declares that the feud is over. Here's my thing. How is it a feud if only one person said something? That's not a feud. That's one person talking. That's what's been, oh, the feud is over. Oh, the media loves it. When, when black folks are at each other's throats, they just love it. Dude, are we going to get another East Coast, West Coast battle? I mean, the media really fanned the flames back in the 90s of the East Coast, West Coast battle. They really did. Oh, it was great for hip hop periodicals. The Source, Vibe. I mean, all they had these periodicals that spent time, you know, dissecting and focusing on hip hop culture. I mean, they were fanning a flame. What did Tupac say? What did Biggie say? And then when people got killed, they sort of backed up and said, damn, bad media. We brought poison to the game. But in the back of their minds, they know they love it. It sells. But Remy Ma says no more. It's over. It was over before it started. How is it a feud if one person never responds? But it goes back to what I've been telling you about when sucking MCs try to clop at you. I mean, you got to make a decision as to how you're going to respond to it. But, <laughs> you know, some of these Gilligans, you just got to do them like you just got to hit them with the the. It's like the the internet version of the stiff arm. Let's say you got a Gilligan out there for whatever reason they're on Facebook or on Instagram. And they got something to say about what you do and how you do it. You hit them with that 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 good old fashioned internet stiff arm. Boom! You hit them with that block. You ignore that nonsense, and you just let the fire sizzle out. And that's exactly what Nicki Minaj did, and that's exactly what happened. Jill writes, good morning, all. 
just a good old-fashioned internet stiff arm like, bye, Buster. Monique writes a good morning, everyone. Mike writes good morning, fam. Carolyn writes good morning, choppers. Uh, I will be uh, going to the friends who like the Nathan Ivy Show Facebook group page uh, to see what you might have been posting over the last 24 hours. Again, I encourage you because I can't see everything. I can't be everywhere. I encourage you to send me links. Uh, you can send them to my Facebook page, but uh, join a group, the Facebook group. And uh, people are posting things all the time. So really good stuff. So uh, send it to me, choppers. Casey Rice, good morning, Nate, and the choppers sending positive Powerful vibrations to you all. Oh, yeah. I need all of them. I'm soaking in the powerful vibrations. Hold on. There it is. Got them. Kiki writes, great morning, Mr. Ivy and the Choppers. And one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven lips. Kiki writes, hashtag Biggie 20. Brenda writes, happy Thursday, everyone. Hey, good to see you, Brenda. What's up, Derek? He writes, a morning chop shop. Famer writes, good morning, choppers. 20 years ago today, the notorious B.I.G. was taken from us. This is the national day of mourning for hip-hop. It is. And listen, Biggie was lyrically gifted, man. He was like one of them first big dudes that was still like getting ladies and like, you know, dudes wouldn't call him like fat ass and stuff like that. You know how kids can be so mad, so nasty to one another. He was like a cool big dude. And Biggie was lyrically gifted. He certainly was. But to say he's one of the greatest lyricists of all time, I don't, you don't have enough material in my opinion. I mean, Puffy for year was, years was proclaiming Biggie as the greatest of all time. I know why he was doing it. That was his friend. They were close. Plus, he makes money off of Biggie. But I'm going to tell you one reason why Biggie cannot be the greatest lyricist of all time. He was a great storyteller. But there wasn't a lot of substance. Like, so, well, I take that back. He, so there was social substance because he would talk about his experience with the crack cocaine game. But all them dudes do that. I mean... Any 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 rapper coming out of the projects that ever sold a, a dime bag of weed? One of the first things they rap about is how they sold a dime bag of weed. So there wasn't a lot of substance, in my opinion. Like political substance. That's just one reason why Biggie can never be the greatest. But I mean, I enjoyed his flow. So don't get me wrong. Like if I'm in a club and one more chance comes on, I'm on the dance floor just like you. I love it. Brian Rice morning. Tracy Rice, hey, she switched up the avatar. Good to see you, Tracy. Craig Rice, what's up, Nate and the Choppers? Pam Rice, good morning. Kelly Rice, good morning, Nate and the Chop Shop and Chop Fam, should I say. Rhonda Rice, good morning. Lovely people in the Chop Shop. Ah, good morning. I appreciate you. Come on in. Scott Rice, morning, Chop Shop. Daryl Rice right, Nate, the Khalif Browder story is a prime example of the unjustice system when it comes to men of color. Is that the brother that uh, was un- no, no, he was in uh, Rikers, I believe. And it ended very, very badly uh, with him being killed, I believe. So I don't I do not believe in a death penalty in this country under no terms whatsoever. I don't believe that the government has the right to take your life. I really don't. And we have an imperfect system. 
uh, that that that's even more reason uh, for the government to not be able to come up with some rationale to take your life. And see, what people don't understand is once we give the government the rationale to take your life, even if it's an inmate, it trickles into the world, the civilized world beyond the bars. And it can happen to you in the streets of, the, of this country. I mean, you can have an, inter- an, inter- an encounter with a police officer this morning. You could end up dead. And depending on the circumstances, the courts could side with the police officer and he could walk away because we've created these rationales when it's okay to kill somebody. And I do believe there's a connection between the treatment of humans in this country, whether they are incarcerated or not, and the treatment of humans who are not incarcerated. That's just my humble opinion. What about you? 513-873-7134. And it's being reported that Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters, he made a comment when it was reported about this inmate committing suicide. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing here. Basically, the comment was, quote, unquote, finally, somebody died on death row. <laughs> and he's not talking about death row records. Had to throw in a biggie kind of reference there. Now, that's a rather cynical way of looking at things. It's rather cynical. Finally, someone on death row has died. That's Joe Dieter's comment. And this inmate was from Hamilton County and he killed himself. They found him hanging in his cell. Uh, His name was Patrick Leonard. And he was pronounced dead in Chillicothe on Sunday. I mean, think about that. And see, this inmate committed suicide. I don't know the mental state. But I think it underscores on some levels that incarceration is worse than death. Incarceration for some is worse than death. The human experience was not meant to be confined in a box 23 hours a day. That's not how the human the human experience was supposed to be uh, was supposed to be uh, fulfilled. Not at all. Everybody thinks that the worst thing you can do necessarily in terms of a punishment is take someone's life. And I think it is the ultimate. But I think it's something to be said for spending a life time behind bars, you know, looking out the bar, the windows, knowing, yeah, you're never going to touch the sun in, a, in terms of freedom ever again. And if you don't know it, Hamilton County Prosecutor Joe Dieters is a critic of execution delays. So his statement, finally, someone on death row has died is sort of like fitting. Finally, someone on death row has died. I just don't understand who Joe Dieters is. A woman basically uh, executes her baby. I don't care. Anybody says I have two children. I have a two-year-old right now. It is impossible to leave your child in a hot car. It is impossible. I don't believe it. I don't. Nobody can tell me anything. If, if a grown person looks me in the face and tells me my baby died because I was shopping, my baby died because I forgot him. And when I went into your job, I'm going to call him a murderer to their damn face. It is impossible unless you've got some mental illness or you're high on drugs. And you know you got a lot of professionals out there to go to go to work every single day in their high. Every single day. And that's what I think happened with the woman in Cincinnati uh, many years ago who picked up some donuts, parks in the parking lot of her place of employment, 
grabs the donut from the, the hatchback and then walks into her place. She was probably high. Couldn't wait to get to those donuts. Forgot about her child. Uh, personally, something tells me it was an execution. I don't believe it. There's some people, believe it or not, you might call it a special brand of evil, but there's people out there that have children and then they have they have baby remorse. My life has changed. I don't want to be a father. I don't want to be a mommy, right? And in some cases, you have men who leave. They're like, I don't know. That's your baby now. But when I see these folks, they left their child in a hot car. I think that they were coming up with a rationale to not be a parent anymore. That's what I think. Because being a parent is tough. But damn it, it ain't that tough. It's not that tough. I don't believe it. What does that say about Joe Dieters that he would make such a statement? Leonard was sentenced to death for the 2000 uh, killing of his ex-girlfriend. Not good. (laughs) Not good. Mike writes, Biggie, my favorite is warning. Kush writes, the Source magazine hyped the East Coast, West Coast feud for ratings, which ultimately led to the death of Tupac and Biggie. Yeah. And then the media was hyping up that feud between Remy Ma and Nicki Minaj. The media was right back at it again. And see, there's nothing like a great MC battle as long as it's just an MC battle. But I'm here to tell you that wasn't a feud between that wasn't a battle. How was it a battle when only one side fires a shot? But a Remy Ma saying it's over and she's saying it's over because Nicki Minaj is like, I don't have time for that. She hit him with the she hit Remy Ma with the whole the Internet stiff arm like, OK, bye, boo. Go play with somebody else. But the media was right back at it. It was everywhere, man. People was on daytime television talking about it. I saw a clip of Safari Samuels. You may not know who that is. And that probably says great things about you. But he's a dude who was the boyfriend of Nicki Minaj. If you want to get deep into these hip hop, these hip hop soap operas. I saw him on the Wendy Williams show talking about the the beef. Everyone's the view talked about the Remy Ma, Nicki Minaj beef. The the media was right back at it again. (laughs) Right back at it again. Uh, Let's go to the phone, shall we? Uh, 513-873-7134. All I ask is that you open your mind before you open your mouth. Uh, Caller, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Mr. Nathan Ivey, and the good people of Cincinnati. What up, John? Around the, around the world. Well, you know, before we get to the health care plan, the forest of the C-SPAN, I watched yesterday these characters in the Congress of the Senate vote on this garbage. You know, you're talking about these reality shows, Nicky Mion, and all of these characters, clowns, I call them. I don't follow this stuff. A way to divide and destroy us. You, you would think people would learn some history, but these are young people that don't read history. They don't know nothing about history. But they get caught up in this foolishness. It's sad that um, um, uh, Tupac and all of these other characters allow themselves to be divided and conquered and to be assassinated by their slave masters. Well, you may think, well, somebody else, a black, uh, um, pulled the trigger. Yeah, but they were caught up, too, in the foolishness. You would learn, we would think we would learn from the past stop getting caught up, but it's the vicious cycle, reality shows, wicked, um, um, you know, mention a couple of shows that are on TV, the reality, Housewives of Atlanta, 
a circus. When I watch that stuff, I watch two minutes and I turn away from it. I said, it's very sad to see African-American women, yes, this is black women, this is Women's History Month, to get caught up in this foolishness. Another day, another time. You know, I was watching flicking TV and watching C-SPAN yesterday, and I saw these characters on the Democrat aisle, as well as the Republican, vote on this factless health care plan. Not too many people are, really understand, not even half of them characters that vote on them haven't even read anything. If we go back in time when Barack Obama was crafting this plan, yes, I'm pointing fingers at him. Some people don't like it. Well, too bad. But Barack Obama was crafting this. It wasn't even law. And he allowed the insurance companies to jack the rates up before it became law. If you go back even further, everybody forget that TARF bill. The TARF bill when Barack Obama came in, so this country was falling and falling fast. He bailed out all the corporations. Yes, your taxpayers' dollars. They were stealing and stealing big time. He bailed out the insurance companies. So Barack Obama starts working on the health care plan. Jack and he had turned the other way, not allow he allowed insurance companies to jack the rates up. See, this is where the fix was in, and people didn't even understand this whole health care plan. So I followed this circus for a long time. So the insurance companies at Barack Obama, it wasn't even law, and they were jacking the rates up. But you know what? I got to say this, though, John. Listen, part of the reason why the uh, so-called Obamacare wasn't more progressive, it wasn't more uh, tilted toward uh, patients and and citizens because of the compromises that he was forced to do with the Republicans. Yes. You're right. I I, I agree with that assessment. But the other part I'm arguing about is he bailed the the insurance industries out because this whole thing was falling. And he should have cut a deal saying, wait a minute, insurance company, this thing is not not even law yet. Why are you jacking the rates up? I took care of you guys. I bailed you out. Nobody said nothing. Everybody looked the other way. He allowed the insurance That's not true. There was a lot of criticism from Democrats and Republicans. Progressives, as a progressive, we're never happy with Obamacare. Never happy. What progressives wants is what I was talking with my guests yesterday about. We want a single payer system. We want to eliminate the insurance companies. That is the problem. Well, my argument is the problem with before he even got involved with this law is the rates were out of control anyway because everybody on both sides of the aisle looked the other way and allowed the rates to be jacked up. So now Barack Obama comes into office. That's the only thing that he got passed. My big argument, and you're not hearing me out, is he should have put pressures on insurance companies when he was negotiating, as you would say, said, wait a minute, hold it. Let this thing become law. So the inner works or whatever you want to tweak and work on, yes, it's not perfect. You're right. It's not perfect. It's going to be tweaked. It's going to be worked on. So what Trump is doing is the same exact thing. He, he can't dumped the whole system because he saw Barack Obama and his people made it so tough for him to even do anything. Yeah, he can go into it, tweak it, and play with it, and call it some other kind of name he wants. But the big argument is, just before, as this election was kicking in, nobody talked about those rakes was going to kick in. This is under Barack Obama now. Don't blame it on on anybody else. This was under him. Well, we know what happened. But, John, he we know what he, happened. He should have prepared the people. He should have prepared the people. Hey, wait a minute. These rates are going to kick in. Everybody was quiet. 
See, you see, Republicans knew the rates were going to kick in. They wanted Barack Obama to think himself, him and Hillary. So part of Hillary not getting is in those rates, people yeah. got so I get, Okay, that may or may not be true, John. I got to jump in here. That may or may not be true. I do not recall every single conversation. But perhaps you're right about that. I'll give that to you. Okay, just for the sake of moving the conversation along. But my question is, is 2617. Now what should we do? And what I think we should do is keep our eyes on the midterm election. What I think we should do is vote for people to office or politicians that are in favor of the type of health system that you like, that you think we should have. What do you think we should do, John? Well, it, it, it's it, it's a wait and see. It's hard to say what's going to happen. Wait but and see. With this. see but, but to see what Trump is doing with this health care plan, it's taking Barack Obama's same plan, tweaking it, going into it, but he's putting he's putting the power more in the in the hands of the insurance company. It's going to be a privatized system. They won't say it because they know people are going to be kicked off the system. People are going to get pissed off, and and half of his party don't even like it. Because so John, they know those. So John, one, one my question is, we know what happened in the past. We know that there's feelings about Obamacare. We know all of this. What should we be doing? It's 2017. We got to look forward, not behind us. I gave you my suggestion. Let's focus on the midterm elections. Let's vote on people to, into office who have ideas about our health care system that we agree with. And your suggestion is that we wait and see? No, well, I'm not saying wait and see. Yes, the only thing you can do is see your vote your conscience, decide on who you want to vote for, and hold these rats, Republicans and Democrats, accountable. So whoever you decide to vote for, it's got – and the other, the other twist is I hope to see – these protests across the country continue because you've got to put pressure on these congressmen and senators that you elect in the office that all they're doing is selling you down the drain anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But I love it. I never thought I would see these protests happen a dollar late, a dollar so short, but it is happening. So be it. That's the only thing that you can do is right. wait and see, keep the protests coming, and put pressure on those rats in Washington. All right, John. Thank you for your flow, brother. Take it easy. Right. That's my man, John, in Princeton, New Jersey, checking in. And I don't I don't want to relitigate what happened in the past, per se, unless it's relevant into some actions in the present and in the future. OK, the, the problem with the Republicans, they had seven years to come up with a better plan. The reason why it's been so difficult for them is very simple, my friends, is because Obamacare is already a moderate Republican plan. And so the challenge for the Republicans was to, was to come up with a plan that would out moderate Republican, the moderate Republican plan, because, again, Obamacare was based upon Romney care. That's not a progressive plan. Progressives in this country, they want single payer. They want to eliminate the insurance companies. They want the government to have more of a role in negotiating and also uh, determining what prices are going to be state by state, creating some standards. I mean, people are getting price gouged when it comes to your health care. This is a huge issue. A huge issue. 513-873-7134. If you want to transform your brainwaves into Internet talk radio waves. I'm live. I'm local and I'm vocal. I'm also scheduled to be joined by Yvette Simpson. Miss Simpson is running for the mayor of Cincinnati at the top of the hour at 8 a.m. Stick around for that. Or check out the podcast. For now, I've got the Bloomberg Urban Report for you.
With the Bloomberg Urban Report, I'm Donna Wilson. Maryland Congressman Elijah Cummins had a meeting with President Trump yesterday about getting prescription drug prices down. He presented him a bill that would let Medicare negotiate prices with drug makers. Meanwhile, Congressman Cummins also discussed HBCUs. He told the president that what black colleges and universities need most is money. The American Medical Association says it won't support the proposed health care plan as drafted by congressional Republicans. The nation's largest physicians group says the proposal is flawed and a threat to coverage for poor and sick people in the U.S. And hiring managers were busy last month. ADP says private employers added 298,000 workers to their payrolls in February. That was the biggest monthly gain in nearly three years. <laughs> the baby is just so beautiful. Mom, this baby is a toddler now. Sammy's into absolutely everything. We've been working on childproofing. That's why we called Budget Blinds to come put in motorized blinds and shades. Those beautiful new window treatments are motorized? Yeah, you just use this remote. See? Oh, that is so great. But what is it? it have to do with baby proofing? No cords. Nothing for Sammy to grab hold of. Wow, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's more of a necessity than a luxury when you have kids. <laughs> my grandson is beautiful. My daughter is brilliant. And now I need budget blinds to come to my house right away. Budget Blinds helps you child-proof your home with the luxury of cordless motorized window coverings. And during the Luxury Within Reach event, the more you buy, the more you save with savings up to $2,000. Hurry and call 855-BUDGET-BLINDS now before this offer ends or go online to budgetblinds.com. Don't miss out. Call 855-BUDGET-BLINDS now. Offer good on select products at participating independently owned and operated franchises. Restrictions may apply. Ask for details. That's your Bloomberg Urban Report. I'm Donna Wilson. Major key alert. Don't ever play yourself. Life is like school, you will be tested, so pass it. Learn the real major keys to getting to college at GetSchooled.com. Stay focused. Now that's a major key alert. Brought to you by GetSchooled and the Ad Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right because remember those jobs you were looking for those are really needed and they're the stuff inside your stuff even inside that winter coat that moved with you to phoenix our job is to unlock those jobs and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local goodwill Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. My name is Tamaya Dinar, and I'm running for Cincinnati City Council to make your government more accessible to you. We should change city council meetings to 6 p.m. so they're easier to attend. We should have city council host a meeting in all 52 neighborhoods, and we should explore changing our charter to stagger our election. That way, you hear from council members more than once every four years. Government was designed to best service people. It's time we made City Hall more accessible to regular folks like you and me, and not just campaign donors. To find out more, please visit TamiyaDenar.com. When elected, I will make City Hall more accessible to you. You're listening to The Nathan Ivey Show. One man, one microphone, one mission. Now let's get back to the flow.
morning. Coming to you live from the city of Cincinnati. This is the Nathan Ivey Show. Dale writes, Nikki should have made a response to that cheater. That's good old-fashioned hip-hop stuff. Hip-hop is rooted from MC's battles. You're right. Like, if you like battle rap, like, if you really like battle rap, you do know there's a whole, I won't necessarily call it underground. I think it's much more mainstream now. You can go on YouTube and see some of the most amazing battle rappers in the country if you like battle rap. And my little brother got me into it years ago. got a text from Yvette's people. Make sure they have the proper number. So yeah, if you like battle rap, you can find it on YouTube if you're into it. I guess Nikki wasn't into it. And now Remy Ma saying I'm backing away from it as well. And she's got this whole like, you know, I don't want to be that one that's tearing down a other who's tearing down a sister kind of thing going on. I've got the audio for you. You know, I compile the most compelling audio each and every day for you. So stick around. We'll get to it during the second hour. Akeem writes, I feel like singing. <laughs> you feel like singing? Don't do it. Do, don't do it. If you're going to, don't do it. If you're going to do it, you got to get in before Yvette calls in. Fame writes, uh, Dieter's on inmate suicide. Finally, someone on death row has died. Fame writes, Savage as, well, you as F. That is Savage. Finally, someone on death row has died. I mean, if, if that doesn't give you the mentality of Joe Dieters, in a nutshell, I don't know what does. And again, this is the same man that botched the Sam DeBose case. Everybody in Cincinnati media gave him a break except for me. He botched the Sam DeBose case. He botched it. And then had the nerve to sit down with local media and say, oh, I could have did better. I could. You could have did better. If I was a family member, I would be outraged. In fact, I'm not a family member and I'm outraged. He never would have done that. If the trial was some a man who was convicted or a person convicted of killing a police officer, he would have brought his A game. He would have, as they say in the entertainment business, left it all on the dance floor. I could have did better. Yeah, you could have did better. I don't even have a law. There were people in the audience, including myself, who were dissecting that case day by day. That was ridiculous. And then the man says, finally on death row, somebody (laughs) has died. That is is savage, fame. And here's why it's so savage. Whether you know it or not, there's a debate raging on some levels in the country as to whether we should continue with this barbaric ritual of arbitrarily deciding deciding who decide who should live and who should die. And the debate is really centered around and it's touched Ohio because the big European pharmaceutical companies many years ago decided that they wanted to get off the death train. This is real stuff. I'm telling you, the big European pharmaceutical companies years ago decided we don't want to play America's death game anymore. And they decided that they were going to stop uh, providing the various drugs that are used in uh, executions throughout the country to the states. I mean, Oklahoma, a man was like choking to death. He was gurgling. I mean, basically, he was tortured to death. 
And a lot of people said, well, he was on death row. And what people don't understand, and it's why I opened the show the way that I did. I'll say this again. If they can torture to death an inmate on death row, they can torture you to death in your home. Don't think it can't happen. So we got to fight for the rights of people behind bars to make sure that they're not just treated subhuman. Because if they're subhuman, then the powers that be can arbitrarily decide that you and your family are subhuman. Wake up. I know I got a lot of people in the audience. We've had this conversation many times and they feel like, well, you know, if you did the crime, you should do the you should do the time. You should pay you whatever your 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 due is to society. Yeah. In a society where everything was fair and above board and honest and people who were poor and people who were brown were people the same, the treated the same way as people who are white and people who have money. But we don't live in that world. When we do get back at me, we can have a conversation. So in the state of Ohio, it happened with an inmate. I'll go ahead and say the inmate was damn near tortured to death. Because the people that administered the death penalty administered, you know, the state's execution were using some new chemicals, some new drugs. They don't know what these drugs are going to do with somebody. It's almost like these executions in and of themselves are human experiments. They've reduced these death row inmates to human guinea pigs because they don't know what these new drugs. As I told you, if you think I'm wrong about this, Google it. I don't know what these new drugs are going to do to these human beings. I mean, how do you know if a drug is going to properly execute someone in somebody's life in the manner that's consistent with the law? I mean, the law says you even if you're on death row, even if you were condemned, they just can't they can't come in and just beat you to death with uh, aluminum baseball bats. I'll say it again, because if that becomes the, the law of the day, then you'll be asleep one night and somebody will burst in. And they'll beat you to death with baseball bats. And they'll justify because you're a terrorist. Come on now. You already know that word terrorist. Man, listen, the government can damn near do anything if they put that label on you. So we need to wake up about these issues. These are this, this is real life. And Joe Dieters, this is amazing. His mentality. He knows all of this. He knows the reason why Ohio's executions have been delayed is because of these crazy chemicals. We tortured, I say we, we, the state on our behalf, tortured a man to death. And he knows this, but he doesn't care. <laughs> I, you know, I think what happens is, I never met Mr. Joe Dieters. I think what happens sometimes is people get into, you know, in his position, I think he's seen like ugly stuff. And, you know, maybe it changes you. Maybe you become very cynical or you become like, listen, you know, some of us just don't belong to be around us, I guess. But that's a, a very savage, very savage. And he knows this. It's not like they just decide, hey, guys, we're going to slow down the executions just because we want to slow down executions. We're liberals today. No, it was because there's a big debate raging about whether we should continue executing people with these untested chemicals. Jekyll writes, good morning, my beautiful people. Make it a great day. Tracy writes, I'm a grandma again. Twin boys. Congratulations. Rhonda Rice, Nikki said, I am not clapping back at no Remy Ma when most people can't name five of Remy Ma's songs without Googling her first. LOL, hands down, I can't. Right. Right. <laughs> it's a great point. I mean, I can, I know one Remy Ma song. That's right. I know one Remy Ma song. What well, two? Because it's this record. That's it. I know Sheether and I know All the Way Up. That's it. Nikki's got a point. 
Uh, Scott writes, uh, congrats to Tracy. Fame writes, uh, Biggie was fly and fat. When he was alive, my women were nines and dimes. Since his death, a few nines and dimes, but a, to- but a lot of fives and sixes with scars and stitches. Uh, you're not making no friends this morning. Not with women anyway, fame up. Uh, a lot of folks saying congratulations. Dare writes, Nate, that was a story where Khalif was sent to Rikers for three years, two years in solitary confinement with a court hearing and no charge for allegedly stealing a backpack. Yes, that was. And when he died, I spent some time talking about that. Uh, he was released after charges were dropped. He was suing the city of New York, but succumbed to mental ills of Rikers and committed suicide. Oh, man. Rikers. Mm, mm, mm. I know I spoke to a prison guard once. He wrote a book about how he was basically a dirty Rikers corrections officer. And he was like, he was, he was like a drug mule, basically. And he was bringing drugs in and out, making money, and they set him up and got him. Tracy writes, I don't believe she was high. I believe she was postpartum and was overwhelmed. Been there. Any parents been there. Everybody goes through postpartum. Dads go through it too, although dads rarely get you know, listen, when when your wife or someone, a woman you're very close to, like your woman, I don't know if it's sexist to say that, but when your woman is going through pregnancy and you're with her every single day, you go through it. And it's well documented. And I had to keep my eye on that about the wifey, even to this time, I mean, Junior's two years old, and I think it still lingers. So I'm very, very careful about that to make sure that the wifey has her space, has her time. Because that is real, Tracy, that is real. Love them kids, but that's real. I keep telling folks, having children is not something you just do by chance. Having children is something you decide to do because that is a huge, your life changes for the rest of your life, period. When you got a child in this world, your life is different. You're always a parent. Whether your child is 2, 12, 22, 32, 42, 82, I think. I hope to find out. Fame writes, how was that black lady who decapitated her newborn declared to fit to stand trial? I specifically remember Joe Dieters on Lincoln Ware saying she was obviously mentally unstable. I remember that, too. I remember that, too. Matter of fact, I may have been I may have been standing in the producer's box for that conversation. I just don't recall specifically. Now, maybe I was at home. I can't recall. Anyway, I'm with you on that. I don't have all the details, man. I've really been focusing on that case. But I did read that she was found fit to stay in trial, which seems ridiculous to me. She was already on some drugs um, to deal with some some mental issues. It just seemed like seemed to me like that was open and shut right there. Seemed like it was pretty open and shut right there. So I do not know, fam. I do not know. I just don't really trust Joe Dieter's judgment. That's what I'll say. I mean, I don't know the man personally. His judgment ever since that case with that young child that was basically cooked to death on a hot summer day because mom was eating donuts. Literally, folks from outside the 513 area are people who forgot. I mean, I'm not exaggerating at all. That's literally what she did. She literally drove to get, I don't know if it was Dunkin' Donuts. She picked up some donuts, put the donuts in the hatchback. I believe she had an SUV, four doors, and a hatchback. People have cars like that. And, uh, you know, she she stops the car at work, gets out, gets the donuts. And and, and then Joe Dieters believes her story. Talking about she forgot. Uh-uh, baby girl. you you Maybe you forgot, but you got to pay for your mistakes. Period. That was ridiculous. So it's not personal. I don't know Joe Dieters. I'm sure personally he is a great guy. But ever since that case, I'm like, uh, I don't know. 
513-873-7134. Again, at uh, around 8 a.m., I'm scheduled to be, to be joined by Yvette Simpson. Uh, Yvette Simpson. And Miss Simpson is running for mayor. She wants to be your mayor of the city of Cincinnati if you live in the city of Cincinnati. And uh, we got a caller on the line. Let's go straight to it. Good morning, caller. How are you? Good morning, Nathan. It's Yvette. How you doing, Yvette? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. We finally hooked up. A little early. Nah, you're great. Perfect. Perfect. Go to 8 a.m. It's great. You still there? I'm still here. Okay, great. Yeah, we finally got a chance to hook up, Yvette. We talked about this last year when you kicked off your campaign. And, yeah, uh, it's been a busy, busy season. It's gone fast. Yes, it has been. But I am a man of my word. I said you would come on first. You probably don't remember it. And uh, you were the first I person to come on. It. Okay. And I am a man of my you word. People were downtown when I saw you. you That's remember? right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And people were like, when are you going to have him on? When are you going to have Rob on? When are you going to have the mayor? I'm like, listen, I got to have Yvette on first because I'm a man of my Aww. word. So. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. So here's what I would like to do this morning. I want you to, you know, introduce yourself or maybe reintroduce yourself uh, very quickly to folks who don't know you. And then I want to talk about some of the issues. And I also want to ask about your motivations for running for 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 mayor as well. I even want to get your thoughts on your uh, your challengers. Right. Your competitors, uh, Mr. Rob Richardson, Jr. and the mayor. And I want to get your thoughts on how you see yourselves differently. And of course, I just saw you a couple of days ago uh, over at uh, James Temple. And that was very interesting. I'm glad that I went. So, again, I'm glad that you're here. I've already told my audience and they're already firing a lot of questions to me. So uh, oh, interspersed between, you know, our conversation, I will be injecting their comments and questions as well. So um, the first thing is this event. I'm just curious. What's the process like to, to run for mayor? You know, it is uh, it's interesting. So I've run two council races and the mayor's race is very different, right? Cuz it's a head-to-head race. And so it's you versus another person. Um that uh, it makes the adversarial like right from the beginning. So automatically is how are you different from this person? What might you do uh differently than this person? And running against an incumbent is really challenging because People tend to be quite complacent, and so they can find some sort of reason why that person should probably be able to keep their job, even if they don't favor that person or that person has never done anything for them. So it's a a real interesting challenge because you've got to automatically be able to kind of pump it up in a real way and say, you know, this guy's okay, um, but, you know, I'm better. And I think that's a real, um, it's a real challenge. Uh, it's an opportunity for me because I do believe that I'm better. I do think that I'm the person that should lead this city. But it's just different because the council race is not so adversarial. You're really presenting your ideas. You're saying, here's what I want to do for the city. And nobody's really running against each other, you know, just because everybody has an opportunity to win. Okay, that so makes it's sense. Been, it's been good. And in the city of Cincinnati, it's a really great process in, in the way that people tend not to be evil or mean. People tend to be very supportive. Um, and, you know, very encouraging. And that's one of the things I've loved about serving the city for the last five years. So what's the who, what's the first call, phone call? I mean, no names, but who's the, when you're running for mayor, who's the first person mm-hmm. that you call? Um, you know, the person that you love is always the first person you call. Those people, your family, your close folks, you call those folks. And I always say, you know, after you do that, you call somebody who's been there before. So I've got a team of people who around the country who have run for mayor or one mayor before. Um, Mark Mallory, of course, is one of the folks that I know closely who's run for mayor. Uh, but then there are some black women around the country who 
are either in positions of strong leadership or who are mayor wow. uh, who I rely on and talk to. Now, so these you got to get your circle. What these you know, folks? You get your circle. I'm sorry, you were these people that that reached out to you or people that were kind of you were affiliated with, you knew them and you reached out to them or both? It was a little bit of both. Uh, it was a little bit of both. Um, there are some people who, um, like I said, the black girl magic, who I called and said, hey, girl, look, I know you're doing this thing. I'm running a lot of enthusiasm, particularly because there's only three black women. We're now four um, who are leading cities, major cities across the country. Um, and so we got a little bit of that. Uh, and then locally here, there's just a lot of people who were very interested in this race uh, and wanted to be able to feed into me, too. So you call those people uh, and then your supporters, you know, the folks who got you to the party. You know, you say, hey, we're gearing up. Uh, we're getting ready to take on this big race. I'm going to need your support. How many years have you been on uh, city council? Uh, this is my sixth year. OK, that's what I thought. I was talking about that um, a couple of days ago. I came ago. in. Well, it's kind of awkward because I started technically in 2012. So I'm working into my sixth year. So I just crossed over the five year line. So was it in your mind near the beginning when you first got on council that one day you might run for mayor? No, um, I actually when I first ran for council, I really didn't think I wanted to be a politician at all. Um, I wanted to try it. Um, I ran thinking I wasn't going to win and that maybe if I did well enough, I might run again. Um, but I honestly didn't think I was going to like it um, or that it wasn't going to work out. Um, so mayor really wasn't kind of in my frame. Um, by my second term, I started to think a little bit more about what my future might be. Um, but I thought if I did run for mayor, I probably would wait a little longer. Um, it just turned out that the opportunity came um, came this time. You know, I, I, I'm not here to say I keep my I keep things very transparent. So I tell mm-hmm. people it's like I'm friendly with Yvette. If I see her, I say hello. But I don't know Yvette. But one observation mm-hmm. that I've had just from a media standpoint, because mm-hmm. I've been in the air, you know, the entire time. Matter of fact, the dated the, the election night six years ago, I was in mm-hmm. the room I and mean, we didn't we hadn't introduced each other. But I was in the room when you hit the stage. I remember Roxanne Qua was there and uh, you seemed mm-hmm. to be very, very emotional. But to me, it seems that this process has changed you. And I don't know how, Mm -hmm. in a good way, though. I mean, I just remember being from the media, hearing some of your first interviews, and then seeing you a couple days ago and just hearing you over the last couple of years. It just seems like it's just strengthened you on some levels. It's made you, I don't know what the word is. How has the the last six years, has it changed you? Has this process, even running for mayor, changed you in in any ways? You know, I think so. I mean, what's that saying? They say, you know, you know, you know, you know, if you're a tea bag, if you're in hot water, whether or not, you know, like that whole thing about what hot water does to you and it makes you, it brings the best out of you or it doesn't, you know what I mean? Well, so you've so been tested, me, basically. I just totally, totally threw that analogy up. But yeah, you know you what did. I mean? You know, you know, you know that you're stronger depending on what happens when you, when you get tested. Right. And one of the interesting things for me is when I started as a council member, I wasn't groomed to be a politician. Like, this is not in my family. I was the first in my family to go to college. I was somebody that had been, a, you know, kind of a public servant, a community servant, and I really wanted um, the chance to serve my community. And so those first couple of years, I was really kind of figuring it out, trying to learn as much as I could, trying to be out there as much as I could, taking it all in. Well, when the mayor came on in 2013, from the outset, it was a battle. So, you know, that kind of test, really kind of turn you up you know I grew up in Lincoln Heights so you know that kind of challenge will be like oh okay so this is how it's gonna be and so it really caused me to start being what one more confident 
too, you know, more more sure, um, certainly more, um, I think, aggressive in a good way and making sure that the people that I care about, the people that I serve are heard. Um, and so it really emboldened me, I think, in a way. Um, and I think that person has always been in there. You know, all the things that I've overcome, I know that I'm strong. But I think that first couple of years, you're really timid. You're just making sure you're on your toes. Make sure you know all your stuff. And then in that last couple of years, these last few years, it's really been about, like, here I am, you know? Uh, and I think that's with anything. You know, the more time you spend with it, the more comfortable you get about it. And then if you're tested, then you're going to come out, you know? And that's what I've been doing the last few years. Do you think that the fact that you spent six years as a member of city council makes you uh, more qualified on any levels than Mr. Rob Richardson, Jr.? You know, I think experience is important. You know, if you ask Rob whether he thought he could be the chairman of UC board without serving on the board for nine years, he would probably tell you no. Um, it's just hard to lead when you haven't served. How do you know what to do if you've never even been a part of the body? How do you lead a group of people if you've never been in that seat? You know, I don't think it's impossible. I just think it's harder. You know, it's a big city and you have to know it. And so anybody who, you know, my challenge with kind of the way that Rob has presented this is that, you know, anybody who wants to be the head of something and they haven't yet served it, I always wonder why you can't serve first. You know, I would always want to serve first before I got in a position where I'm saying, okay, I'm the boss now. And so I continue to push him and challenge him to, to really think about that differently. Could he have led the board of the University of Cincinnati without first serving as a, as a, board, as a board member? I don't, I don't think he would have felt as qualified. And so I do think experience is important. I've learned what's possible. I've learned what's not possible. I've learned how to get things done. I've learned how not to get things done. I've learned how to listen to people, the systems that you need to do this job, the people you need to connect with to do this job. You know, that, that comes with time and it comes with intention. And so for me, I think that experience is going to bode me well um, leading this city. And one of the things I know that I talk about all the time is, I've learned over the last six years there are still so many people in our city who are waiting on the world to change. And I've just decided that I'm going to use my time to change the world for them. And I know how to do that. Yvette Simpson is my guest, and she's running for the mayor of city of Cincinnati. It, it was reported that Rob asked you to step out of the race early in the year. Is that true? You know, I, I promised Rob that we were not going to talk about the privacy of this conversation because <laughs> um, our conversation was private. Um, so I'll let you ask him that question. Oh, I certainly will. I'll ask uh, him on Monday. You should ask him that question. Um, you know, here, here's my bag. You know, anybody and everybody can run for office. It's very, very true. But I always feel like I defer to the people who have, um, have been there. And Rob and I have had a mentoring relationship for a long, long time. When he was in law school, he was a year behind me. I was on the admissions committee when he was coming through, you know, approved his application to get into the law school. And, and he is somebody, because, you know, we didn't have a lot of African-American students, that was a part of kind of a mentoring circle for me. I was mentored, and he was a part of that mentoring circle. And the idea that we can't learn from people who have been ahead of us and take their advice, to me, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's problematic. Um, you know, Alicia Reese is somebody was one of the first calls that I made when I thought I wanted to run, you know, because I respect her and out of deference to her, you know. And so it's one of those things where I, 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 would, have, I, I would have appreciated that that didn't really happen. 
So I won't get into the details of the conversation because we promised that we wouldn't. You, you can ask him if you like. Uh, my guest again is Yvette Simpson, and she's running for mayor in the city of Cincinnati. Uh, Choppers, if you have questions, fire them to me, and I will read them as they come in. And here's a question from Facebook. Uh, someone wants to know, if elected mayor, what is your plan to combat poverty in the city? So I believe in the kind of broken window theory um, of how we resolve poverty in our neighborhoods, you know, and, and in our families, because I grew up in poverty. In our families, I believe that all work in poverty should be ground up. So we know that the issues that are facing our communities in poverty are complicated, meaning they are interconnected. We've got a strategy that we're really excited about that first makes sure that we everything we do is multi-generational. So the support that we provide to the child, we have to also provide support to our parents. Our most vulnerable populations in poverty are our single moms without jobs. That's about 18% of our population. So we've got a shore-up mom um, who is, you know, kind of raising a child. And we've got a couple ideas. One we've already supported called the Scholar House. What it does is it's a special housing for single moms with kids, and they're affiliated with a local university. They get daycare and all the support they need while they go back to school. I want to see more programs like Scholar House for our single moms um, with, with no job so we can get them firmed up. Grandparent families are very stressed. So our most stressed families are grandparent families, meaning like me, my grandmother raised me. So grandma's raising the child because mom or dad is out of pocket. We've got to strengthen grandparent families. And then this other piece, which people don't like to talk about a lot, is what do we do for this child? Right, We might not be able to get mom out. We might not be able to get grandma out. If grandma's in her 60s, job training is going to work for her. She's not going to change her circumstances. But what can we do for that baby to make sure that that baby gets a chance? And so the work that we've been doing in employing young people, we've employed thousands and thousands of black and brown kids, putting them in a position to be able to break the chain, even if we can't get their parents out. Of course, the big factors, which are always important, are stabilizing housing, uh, making sure that people have transportation, um, making sure that people have work and they can get to those jobs is really, really important. But I think in the short term, what we got to do is we got to firm up and stabilize those families that are really, really struggling. And I would start um, for sure with those single moms uh, raising their kids and, and grandma and grandpa who are raising kids. You know, I was speaking with a candidate for city council a couple months ago, and this person mm-hmm. said something I thought was very interesting. It's like, in this city, we're very comfortable, and I've noticed this to be true. We're very comfortable with talking about mm-hmm. concentrated poverty, but we rarely mm-hmm. discover we're very uncomfortable with talking about concentrated wealth. And uh, throughout mm-hmm. this conversation, even with the mayor, I've been monitoring, that hasn't come up. Um, is that something now that can be on your radar screen? Uh, how do we address that? I mean, there is a yin and yang to this. There's a relationship between concentrated poverty and concentrated concentrated wealth, right? Yeah, there is. I mean, the disparity, right? We probably have as a city probably the highest disparity index. And how is that uh, possible? Even? We're probably top ten, which means the divide between rich and poor is wider in this city than just about anything. And part of that is segregation, right? So if people are segregated, what what tends to happen is we can decide or people can decide the folks over here get this and the folks over there get this, and you never bring those two together. You know, mixed-income communities are the strongest communities nationwide and around the world because you get the best of everything, right? Individuals who 
um, are in poverty get the chance to benefit from the great things that come from being in, in community with folks who are not, and you get the chance to share that, you know, that opportunity and that exposure to what it looks like um, to do better. You also don't have the concentration of services um, or neglect of services when people are, like you can when people are segregating. And right now, this, this is a tale of two cities. It really is about, you know, when you think about um, the health department did their report that said that the life expectancy for African Americans is 20 years shorter I know. than it is for white Americans, even if the, the black Americans live or the black Cincinnatians live in Avondale and the white Cincinnatian lives in North Avondale. Right. We're talking about one street. Right. So one of the challenges we've got to do is how do we take the resources and the abilities of our populations of wealth and use those to benefit the populations in poverty? And that doesn't mean you give a handout or anything like that. I think it's just really important to make sure that the policies that we enact uh, make sure that they're balanced, that we're not widening that gap, that we're making sure we're filling the gap for those who, who are left out. And that's the work that we're going to do with our Ready, Set, Go initiative which we've been talking about a little bit, but we're going to start rolling out our plans specifically in the coming weeks as we get closer to the primary. This Ready, Set, Go plan says that every single neighborhood gets exactly what it needs to get to the next level, and we continue to help those neighborhoods at the bottom until they get to the level where they're ready to go, so it's ready and set and then go. And I think what's happened in the past is we have, in, in many ways, kind of let the system play out. Well, it's never going to shift for the people who are in poverty if we don't do something different if we don't infuse more resources, if we don't give more opportunities to the individuals who are in poverty. So I think segregation, meaning we live separately and we live in, in not only just racially stratified um, places, but socioeconomically stratified places. And so the people at the bottom never move. Right. They uh, and stay the people at the bottom. At the top continue to grow. Um, and that takes, I mean, you, you know, I continue to criticize Rob for calling me the incumbent when I'm a council member. I did notice that. Mayor. Um, and you had yeah. to correct him too. That was that was a good correction. I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you say, wait, 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 wait. I'm not the incumbent. Right. That was that was good. Well, there is a difference, and it's one that there you is. would know if he had actually served in the seat. There's a difference between uh-uh. the two. Okay. Uh, and so, you know, the difference is when you're a council member, you got to start by getting five other people to agree to anything that you do. And then you've got to pretty much make the administration pay attention to your thing. I've got several pieces of legislation where I've literally had to call the administration every 20 days to make sure my stuff gets done. When you, and, and particularly when you've got a mayor like this one who, just, who says, look, administration, you do what I say, and you don't do nothing else unless I say it. Okay, stop right so there, in Yvette. my administration, hey, hey, Yvette, we wouldn't have that. Yvette, stop right mm-hmm. there for a second. I've heard those critiques of, of John Cranley. I've heard them from multiple sources. Uh, mm-hmm. Even people who have worked in City Hall have said this. W- what is John Cranley like as the mayor? What, you know, what was I mean, the I tipping think, point that made you decide to challenge him? Characterization. I think, I, think he, I think he feels proud of the fact that he's a strong mayor. I think he feels proud of the fact that he's aggressive, that he uh, is divisive. I think he is kind of, he, he's politically savvy. He's proud of that. Um, but he's divisive, um, and he can be pushy. And I think these are things that character traits that he thinks makes him a great mayor. I disagree. You know, I don't think that you have to be rude or disrespectful or divisive or aggressive um, in order to be the leader. You may remember the situation that happened with Marion Spencer. I do. Remember when she had, she had spoke out and said that he had tried to bully her into supporting that park levy, and she told him where to put it. 
She said, I'm 96 years old. You don't tell me what to do and hung up on her. And she's endorsing I mean, you now, right? That kind of stuff. Huh? She's now endorsing you, correct? She is. Okay. But she's been a supporter of mine for a very, very long time. She's somebody who's in that list of people that I'll call initially as well. And um, so so that those kind of tactics to me are not leadership. You know, instilling fear in people and controlling people, that's not leadership. Does that mean you don't put your foot down? No. Does that mean you don't tell people that they need to do their job? No. But you know that you can't get very far if you continue to push, push, push people, disrespect people, um, and treat people a certain way. And I think that kind of fear, that leadership of fear and intimidation, you know, it needs to stop. Leadership of fear? Wow. We need a new type of leadership. Okay, so you're saying that's how you would be different from John Cranley, is that you would be a different type of leader. You wouldn't sort of sound like almost you described a bully. You wouldn't try to intimidate and bully people. No. Okay. It just doesn't work. You know, so, and, 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 and I don't want people to misconstrue. I mean, you, you talk to anybody, they're not they're gonna tell you I'm not a pushover. Believe me. But I've never had to threaten anybody to get anything done. It doesn't work. You know, and so I think one of the important things about being the mayor is understanding that the way that you wield power doesn't have to be aggressive. You know, that you can direct people and get people to to come along with your vision in a way that doesn't require you to threaten them. And I think that's that's a very important distinction in a Simpson administration um, that you, you know, from from a Cranley administration. And I think the other thing is, you know, there's not going to be a red phone in my office. It's not going to be if you know the number to the red phone, you get access to me. And I think a lot of people feel like, and you can tell the way he's not showing up now for these, um, for the, uh, for the, for, for the debates um, in the black community. Forums. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, if you don't have a red phone, then I don't care about you. You're not important. But he'll stand and take these pictures with these important people who, give, who are giving um, him these endorsements. And I got time for you. I got time to stand and do a press conference with you. So you can show your support for me, but I don't have time to come to the community and account for what I've done. And that's the sense that people have about about John is that if you somebody and you can do something for him, then you're good. If you're not, then you know take a couple of seats. That's not what we're doing here. You know, we're saying that look, I'm a servant. I serve people, and every single member of our city, you know, is my boss. I take that very seriously. I got into this work because I wanted to serve people. I wanted to be able to change lives for people, just like it happened for me. You know, little girl in the projects in Lincoln Heights. No, everybody counted me out because of the way I the way I grew up and the struggles we had. You know, and here I am, and that didn't happen because of necessarily who I am, but lots and lots of people um, and systems, but mostly people um, who helped me get through. Uh, and I, I just wanted to be one of those people for our kids. You know, so that you don't have to, if your parent, your parents aren't Oprah Winfrey and Bill Gates, you still have an opportunity, you know, to be able to be successful. Yvette Simpson is my guest. So what would be the policy difference between yourself and John Cranley? You know, we're hyper-focused on neighborhoods. Um, We're hyper-focused on safety, but we're not doing it in a get the bad guys over aggressive enforcement sort of way. We're doing it in a community-based way. Um... You know, we're hyper-focused on workforce, and we're not talking about those high-paying jobs that John's taking credit for, you know, those 6,000 jobs that are headquarter jobs that were relocated from other places. You know, we're talking about the jobs that everybody wants to do, the jobs that everybody can do, that lift people out of poverty. Um, So, you know, our focus is really those core issues. 
we're going to do it smarter. We're going to do it better than the way he's doing it. And I know that we can. You know, I'm blessed to have, you know, gotten a law degree and an MBA. I know how to run a city. Um, I have the ability to be able to use resources smartly. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with neighborhoods. Um, you know, John Cranley said he wanted the shortest line to be the line at the building permit place for developers. You know, and, and that's just not, you know, that's not where we want it to be. The shortest line should be the welfare line. And so I want to make sure that we are focused on investing in our neighborhoods. I want to make sure that we are focusing on making sure that the neighborhoods who have been neglected are the first that we go and serve, that we get great resources on the ground for them right away. You should see a change right away. Um, we want to make sure that we're talking to the community about what they want to see. I've worked on seven neighborhood plans. And those plans are currently in action. Uh, we want to do more of that work. Um, we're going to hyper-focus on violence prevention, which is how do we not wait for the gun to be kind of shot? How do we make sure that the individuals who are more likely to pick up a gun never pick it up in the first place? I mean, that's the kind of work that I want to do right now. Uh, and we can't do that work under a Cranley administration because he's a hire more cops, more aggressive, less arrest them, arrest them up, put them in, a, in the jail as a first mode, and that never works. I mean, look at our crime rate. You know, John Cranley said, uh, put, put Jeffrey Blackwell on a 90-day plan this time. Yeah, I remember. So, and where's our 90-day plan now? are up even more than they were back then. Yes, they are. Where's the 90-day plan? I asked the same question. Where is the plan? I don't think a plan is coming. But is that, but if you're elected mayor, I think mm-hmm. what happens is, despite whatever your good intentions are and the things you want to do, people still respond to the same thing. So like if you become mayor and crime goes up and people are saying, listen, this is great. You're doing community investment and the community and all this kind of stuff. And that's great. But that's good. That's a long-term investment. When crime goes up, people want to see relief right now. Yeah. Yeah. And we will. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about violence prevention is you don't just have to wait for, you don't have to wait. You're still, you still got your systems in place right now and your police systems and one of the things we're going to do a little differently is when we arrest people, we're going to find out what went wrong. You know what I mean? We're going to, we're going to work really hard to make sure those folks don't reoffend. How do we make sure we get, and, and that was a part of the serve model, but one of the pieces that was missing from the serve model was the service part of it. You're asking these guys to come out of a life of crime. You ain't got nothing for them to go to. And we need to reinvest in that piece of it. How do we make sure? So violence prevention isn't just about making sure the kid doesn't pick up a gun. It's also making sure that the person who shot somebody, if they get the chance to start over, doesn't do it again. It's getting into why did you do it in the first place? And how do we change the circumstances in your, in your life to make sure you don't do it again? I mean, and right. that's what I love about the violence prevention model. It doesn't say you shot somebody, you're a bad guy or you're a violent person, you're a bad guy, is how do we change the dynamics so you don't do that thing that you, that you might feel pre-inclined to do? Or you, if you've done it once, you don't do it again. And what we're doing is we know that you know, 90% of the crime that happens in our city is done by 2% of the people. Is that right? So how do we make, right, it, it's, it's that extreme. I mean, it is a really small population of people who are responsible for a lot of the shootings in our city. How do we make sure that we're going after those folks, we're getting them off the streets, and we're figuring out a way to make sure they don't reoffend? How do we do that? Uh, and so that's a major focus of mine. And I think if we start to do that, we're going to be great. It's easy to say we're going to lock them up, lock them up, lock them up, lock them up, and then they get right back out, particularly if they don't look like you. 
or there's no chance ever they're going to show up in your neighborhood to shoot you because you live in Mount Lookout or Hyde Park. I live in the West End. Look, that bullet might just get me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, not to be extreme, but the reality is, is I've always lived in, in communities and always wanted to live in communities where real people live because I want to be a part of that. And so our strategy will be to make sure that we are focused, hyper-focused on making sure people don't reoffend and that our young people or our grown people who might be inclined to pick up a gun don't pick up a gun in the first place. I'm speaking with Yvette Simpson. Uh, enough of my question. I'm going to go straight to my, my listeners. James writes, if, if, be, if you become mayor, what can you do about the skyrocketing sewer rates, if anything? Well, um, so MSD, um, we set the sewer rate, um, which is, um, and we set the water rate. But MSD is partially controlled by the county. Part of the reason why we have had such a standstill in our conversations with the county is not necessarily just because the county has been Republican control, but because, frankly, our administration has had a heavy hand when it comes to MSD. And so the county has said, screw you. Um, you may remember that we didn't have many, half as many challenges in the battle with MSD, you know, six or seven, eight years ago. Um, and so, you know, my tact is, hey, um, county, you know, we have to make this a win-win for everybody. One of the big changes we need to make in sewer and water um, rates is we need to make sure we're sharing the wealth so everybody pays according to their own, you know, what, 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 they, what their um, impact is on the system. Yeah, the consumption so right rates. right now that isn't true, right? There are people who are paying and subsidizing for larger users. How do we shift our system to a system that's similar to cities where everybody pays their fair share? So here's how this works. You know, there's a fixed cost to running a system like this, right? You got to have buildings, you got to have sewer lines, you got to have that cost doesn't go away no matter how much people use your system, right? And those costs are going up, right? Because we got old sewer lines that need to be gone. We need to go in and replace those sewer lines. And so, what we need to make sure is that I'm not, as one user, paying more for that fixed cost than somebody who has a big building with 200 people in it. And so we need to sit down with the county and say we need a, a redistribution system that makes sure that everybody pays their fair share. But you said so the city sets important. the rates, right? Is that city council sets the rates? Yes, we do. And what determines we're on water rates? Yeah, who determines what okay. determines that rate? Why not lower the rate and give people relief? Because that fixed cost continues to go up. So we're under a consent decree that we have to replace so much percentage of our sewer line because in the past they didn't make those changes. So it's like Somebody owned a house, and they didn't make the repairs on the house, and now the house is ours. And so we got to pay to make to fix up the house in a way that they didn't in order to make it function. That's where we are, are right now as a council, um, and where I would be as the mayor, is that we've deferred all of that maintenance, and now the federal government has said, you've got to replace these sewers right now, and if you don't, we're going to fine you. So part of the reason why the sewer rates are going up is because we've got to spend all this extra money, more than a billion dollars, actually, billions of dollars, um, to be able to replace old sewer line that we hadn't fixed in the years past. So that's why your rate is going up, because we've got to take care of that fixed cost. What I'm saying is that let's make sure that our system is such that individual that Simpson doesn't pay a greater share of that fixed cost than somebody who's got a building with 200 people. Mm -hmm. Right, that makes sense. And so we've got to adjust our, our, our rate system to make sure we're not subsidizing big big industry, and that's the way the system is set right now. Um, uh, and we need to work with the county to make sure that that happens, because we do set the rates, but they also have control over it, meaning okay. they have they can they can 
um, in many ways. They can they can check that. Uh, my guest is Yvette Simpson. Uh, Carolyn writes, uh, what are your thoughts on the NEP Cincinnati? I believe that's the Neighborhood Enhancement Program. Yes. So I've been leading the charge on this issue. I, uh, Mount Auburn was the most recent NEP. Um, there were so many people who got code enforcement and lead and litter, lead, weed and litter, sorry, weed and litter tickets. Um, uh, some people as much as six or $7,000 for high grass. Um, there are people who are saying that they got warrants or were arrested for not um, meeting um, building code orders and, and citations. And so the challenge with NEP, so the good thing about NEP is that NEP is designed to go in the neighborhoods and improve them. It's a 90-day blitz. They go in and they make sure that they're paying more attention. So our officers are out more in that area. We're doing some great neighborhood projects to improve the neighborhood. But the challenge with this is this aggressive code enforcement. I like the aggressive code enforcement if you're talking about a landlord or a slumlord who is taking advantage of people. I want to get that guy. That guy I want. What I don't want to do is have this broad sweep of inspectors who come out and they say, oh, your gutter's crooked. I'm going to give you an order. Oh, your, you know, your um, siding is, is falling. I'm going to give you an order. And what has happened in Mount Auburn is that there's been an over-citation of individual homeowners um, under this NEP. It's been aggressive um, orders, and people can't afford to make the repairs. So what's happening is they're getting these orders and it's piling up. And some people are in danger if they don't make those repairs um, because those fines add up of maybe getting a lien and losing their homes. That's not what NEP is supposed to be about. And so what I met with the administration yesterday, and we've got some legislation we'll be talking about tonight at the Black Agenda meeting that says, um, you know, we're not going to continue this practice until we find a solution. So my solution is, one, we aggressively cite bad landlords who have the wherewithal to take care of their property, and they are the eyesores in the neighborhood. For individuals who are in a neighborhood, we can give them warnings if they're violations, but then what we do is we give them resources. We connect them with resources and give them resources to make those repairs. You know, if I'm 80-some years old on a fixed income and a city inspector comes by and says, you got to replace this and it's $10,000, I can't do that. You know, we had that same situation when I did all the meetings around the flooding. I mean, we had hundreds of people come into our meeting, um, the meeting that we held, the meetings that we held in the community, and say, I can't pay to fix my basement. So the problem with NEP, to be short about it, is that we've got inspectors out in these neighborhoods, mostly black neighborhoods, giving a lot of citations during the NEP, and then people are stuck with these huge fines that they can't pay. Uh, uh, and, it's, and it's a problem. And... You know, the mayor is pushing for housing court, which isn't a bad thing. The problem is, is now housing court is the place where these will go, and you're going to have homeowners going through a housing court getting felonies for not making repairs on their homes. That's not the point. I want to go after the guy who is getting, you know, getting tons of Section 8 or getting tons of rent payment, and they're taking that money and putting it somewhere else instead of putting it back in the building. I don't want to go after homeowner who can't afford to make their repairs. And if I do, I want to give them the resources if they can't afford it to get those things fixed. Yvette Simpson is my guest. Now, earlier when we started the conversation, you were talking about, uh, you know, just the issues of poverty and how it's impacting a lot of elderly folks, grandparents, as you said, and also mm -hmm. single, single mothers. And a few people inside the chop shop are asking, what about relief for single dads? Uh, mm -hmm. But I think, you know, single mothers probably mean single parents, but also um, as yeah. well. But also what about relief for, 
um, uh, people who are married, couples who just yeah. because of the way the economy is working right now, they might both be working full time, but literally right. are still hovering too close to the poverty line. Well, I did. I definitely think we need relief for, for anyone who's suffering from poverty. What our research shows is that the people who suffer the most, the people who have the worst situation are those two populations I told you about. So if you're going to start with a problem, you always start with the ones who need it the most. That's always my perspective. Single dads account for about 7% of our families. They're a very small population. And what I'm finding is that they're not, they're not struggling as much as single moms. Surprising, And I don't know if that means that they have a, a different support system. Maybe they've got a mom. You know what I mean? Maybe you got a single dad and, mm-hmm. and, and, and mom is helping and mom's a little stronger. I don't know. Uh, but we definitely want to support those single dads who need it. Um, and it may be, like I said, because, you know, when you think about single mom, mom may not have the same support system as dad. I don't know. We haven't really dug into and we, we will and we can um, and to why single dads don't seem to struggle as much as single moms. Like I told you, of our single parent population, 18% of our single moms, I didn't see any of our single dads uh, who were who were without work, and so we've got to get those women employed. We've got to get those those women working, um, and um, for all of our families who are experiencing poverty, we've got to make sure if they're ready to take that next step, right? We've got to make sure that they take that next step. Here's what our research also shows us: there are many families in poverty who have the support system that right now they're making it work. And we've got to figure out what the magic is to help people stay stable while we try to get their lives improved, right? How do we keep you stable so that you know that you can take that next step? You may still be in poverty, but you got a mom who can pick up baby. you got a neighbor who can make sure that when the kids are sick, she's taken care of, they're taken care of. While you go to work and work two or three jobs, they got you. And when we can keep them stable, what we can do is then we can start to look into, with them into their lives and say, how do we get you to the next step? Because the reality is if you give somebody who's got two jobs and a single mom and you say, what I want to do for you is I want to give you, uh, I want to get you in a training program so that you can get a new job. What she's going to say is tomorrow i got to get my baby to school. Can you help me get my baby to school tomorrow? (laughs) I mean, and this is the thing with moms, and, you know, I'm making a characterization about women, is that at the end of the day I can't take care of me until my baby's taken care of. So I want to get better, but, like, Tomorrow, I got to get my baby fed. Can you get my baby fed tomorrow? Then we can talk about how I get better. So we've got to get all these families stable and get their support systems firmed up so that we can then help them see the next step. And that's why we have all these job training programs that people aren't connecting to. You know, and I I, I have a, a huge criticism for some of them because I don't think that people should be asked to take 10 weeks out of their life, five times over their life, get training that may or may not end up with a job. We got a lot of people trained to do a lot of stuff that's still not working. You go through this training program, you don't get a job. You go through this training program, you don't get a job. You add all that up, you've got a degree. But these people don't have that. <laughs> and so what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that we're training them for the jobs that are, in the, that are going to be around in the future. And we've got to find a way to make sure the job training is paid so that people can right. not have to give up right. their job and be able to feed their child in order to try to get better. I did some of those trainings for free when I was younger. I said I did some of them trainings in the city of Cincinnati during the summer, and they were free trainings, and I had a great time. I learned a lot, but man, if I could have got paid while I was doing it, it would have been a lot better. 
Well, here's the deal. You have the flexibility. How many people do you know can take 10 weeks off not pay to go to the training program? How many grown people can do that? Most people can't go two weeks. <laughs> you know, right. If you're in poverty, you can't go two weeks without getting paid. Exactly. So we're asking people to take this big leap. And then at the end of the road, there might be a job. But we got a lot of people who are, you know, so we've got to find a way to make sure that people can get job training while they're still working or they can get paid for job training because it's the only way that we're going to get people to kind of take a chance on that next step because they've got to be able to remain stable and be able to take care of business while they're going to that next step. So tonight's the Black Agenda meeting, correct? It is. Okay. And we're in high school. Yeah, I'll, uh, We're doing a press conference at 530 and then the event starts at 6. Okay, I plan on being in attendance. I'll probably have my little ones with me because the wifey's out of town oh, on good. business. Uh, I wanted to see and experience the process. Oh, yeah. We want oh, yeah. to see what activism looks like. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. What role does the black agenda play, in your opinion, in this year's election? You know, the black agenda has been so valuable in helping educate our community about the issues that matter. We're all busy. I don't pretend to believe that everybody who in the city knows what I'm doing day to day, every day, or what any of us are doing, or where the critical touch points are. And I think what the Black Agenda has said, look, we, we are still struggling in a real way. And here's how you as a citizen can, one, know about those things, and here's how you can activate. It takes a lot, a lot of work to put these things on and to spread the message and get people out and get people active. You know, and activism really is kind of for our future, the way that we're going to speak to people who serve us. It's been helpful to me because I'm hearing from people that I normally don't hear from, even though I'm out in the community a lot. Because these are folks who aren't necessarily connected to the city in that way, meaning they don't pay a whole, they don't watch council meetings, they don't call our office, they don't come to neighborhood community council meetings, they don't come out to events and speak out. So we're pulling people who normally are, you know, just living their lives day to day, and we're saying, did you know this is going on? You need to be invested in what's happening with the black community, and we need to hold our leaders accountable. What it helps us do, too, as leaders, is to hear from the community in a real way. I mean, I'm, I'm black, so I know what the issues are that face our community in general, but I don't know every issue that everybody's facing. And so it's important for us as a, as a collective to, to lobby our own officials and say, you know, this is what we need, and we're not going to vote for you if you don't give it to us. And I think that's not, you know, that's not unrealistic. You know, if you think about every other, um, you know, constituency group out there, every, other, every group, they have that. The Jewish community lobbies. You know, the gay community lobbies, the women's movement is lobbying, and we need African-American black people to lobby um, and to say these are the issues that matter. And if you don't, if you don't meet those demands, then we're not going to vote you back in. So it's been really encouraging because I think all the things that I've been kind of working on and screaming about and the things that have been frustrating for me, people are starting to hear about them and they're learning what they can do to change them. Thing is really great. Yvette Simpson is my guest. Uh, Rob Richardson, I thought this was interesting, and he's actually been getting some press about this uh, in local uh, media uh, during the forum at James Temple a couple of days ago. He said, listen, I, I want to re- revive the subway, uh, which was a shocker to me on some levels. And you had a very interesting response. I mean, because you were on city council through this whole streetcar, and now you're sort of calling it a train, which I thought was interesting as well. It's a really uh, unique pivot uh, to give people a different way of looking at it. But what's your take on this idea of revitalizing the subway system in the city of Cincinnati? You know, I don't support it. I mean, I, and I don't know. I've never heard Rob say that before. I don't know where that came from. Um, I need. I mean, 
we've looked at all of the modes of transportation. Subway is the most expensive. And it is, I mean, you think about going underneath the ground and digging out our city and how um, challenging that is and how expensive that's going to be. You know, it's, it's not the way to build trains now. People were doing trains above ground for a very, very important reason. If I dig a, a hole under the ground and go through the city, you don't get that economic development um, until you get to the stops. You have a lot of economic development along whatever the subway stop is, but you won't have any of it in between. And so what we want to do is when we, when we invest in multimodal transportation, meaning we add trains to our system um, to complement buses, um, we need to make sure we do that above ground. Because what that does is people want to be along fixed rail lines, so it causes us to be able to develop housing and develop business um, businesses along that line. And it's cheaper than digging out of the ground. I don't know why he mentioned that. I never heard that before. But nobody, I've never heard, I've not heard anybody talk about um, reviving the subway before. It is just expensive and impractical, and it's not something that you can do in a short period of time. Um, so I'm not sure why why he mentioned that. You mentioned uh, again two days ago in the forum at James Temple that you want to see the train, not streetcar, but the train to go up Reading Road, which yeah. I have been advocating. Now, that means to be a priority so that well, more people are invested in the, the idea. That, it always was. That's the part that got kind of mixed up in the in the streetcar propaganda for the people who were trying to kill it. When we did our early studies on on rail. We looked at the most um, impactful corridors for doing rail. Where is the most traffic? Where is the best places to connect people? Uh, downtown to uptown was first, which was the first phase of the streetcar because you've got your two employment centers there. And then the next best um, kind of inner city rail line is up Reading Road, right, connecting along Avondale, Bond Hill, Rose Lawn. And then, of course, if the county wants to participate, going further out. And then the most impactful um, kind of faster light rail system is up 71. Um, so so what we would do is we would go uptown, and then our first connector off of uptown would be up Reading Road. Um, it turns out that if the Vine Street connector doesn't work out, meaning it, it's impractical for us to go from downtown to uptown, it may be easier and more effective for us to take the streetcar straight from downtown up Reading Road. We've got to do the test to find out if that's um, the best thing to do, and this administration has refused federal dollars to do the study. So other cities have gotten millions of dollars to do studies and millions and millions of dollars to build extensions, and this administration refused to even apply for the money. Like, it doesn't hurt you to apply for the money. We have left hundreds of millions of dollars on the table that could have been right now connecting um, us to, to, to Reading Road. Uh, it's short-sighted. It, it appears short-sighted to me as well. I mean, if the money is not going to, if it's free, so to speak, why not do yeah. the investigation or the analysis and figure out if it works? I think that'd be right. fabulous because, man, if there's any major vein and and Reading Road is so important. I mean, look, it goes from downtown to straight through, you know, into the suburbs. Uh, if everything yeah. was a main vein that needed to be lit up, to be electric again. See, I believe if Reading Road is electrically again, it, it will stimulate the entire city because it connects that. so and much. Going through, going through those, those neighborhoods is exactly what we need to be able to redevelop them. And I want to be careful when I say the word redevelop. I'm not talking about gentrification. 
I'm talking about bringing needed resources to rebuild our communities in ways that people who live there get the things that they've always deserved. You know, meaning we can we can rebuild communities without replacing people. You know, I did work on the redevelopment. Well, how do we do that? Well, one, you got to make sure the developers don't control it. You well, know, how do you do that? We have to. If they're well, the developers, how do you do that? Well, one, it, it helps not it helps not to be be in bed with them, <laughs> um, and not to be one of them. You know, and our current mayor is a developer, and he said he's a developer's mayor, and he believes the development should be driven by developers. I think the development should be driven by communities. There's a difference. If communities drive development, and they're the people who get to decide what their communities will be, then developers will show up if the money's there. Let's be clear. They're going to come to the table. And if they want our money, then they will meet our demands. But I think it starts with seeing, talking, and we've done this. Like I said, I've done seven neighborhood plans. We're working on West End right now. Uh, and we're saying to the community, what do you want to see happen in your community? What do you want to see there? And then we build a neighborhood plan, and we say, developers, if you want city dollars, then you meet this plan. And they do. And they will. And if you and don't, so then kick rocks. If you don't, then you can you can buy a piece of property and build it the way you want to. I can't stop you. But if you need to get zoning or if you need something to happen, you still got to come through us. And so when we have those neighborhood plans in place, then developers also know what they can and can't do. You know, Rob is talking a lot about inclusionary zoning, and that's all well and good, but people have found a way to meet a zoning code and, and still not get, get – you, get, you still don't get what you intended – when you have a neighborhood plan and it comes with all of the specifications, not just kind of what the zone, what it's zoned for, then you know you're going to get what you want. And I'm all about the neighborhood planning process um, being front and center. Our mayor tried to kill the planning department. In fact, he was successful when he was on council of getting rid of the planning department, which allowed developers to just come in the neighborhoods and do whatever they want to do. We made sure that he knew when he became mayor we weren't going to let him do that. He has cut the planning department's budget by quite a bit and isolated them. I'm all about making sure that we have planning people who can be in neighborhoods doing these plans. So developers have to come to neighborhoods and and, and say, hey, you know, what are you guys doing? I'd like to be a part of that. It's a different model. Um, I guess he's, he's it's a much different model. I like the way you put that, you know, a com- development should be driven by community and not necessarily the whims of the developers because the developers in some cases – don't I mean they care about the community in, in as much as they can extract the money they're trying to get from the community? Absolutely. So uh, it, you know when I speak to uh, Mr. Cranley, I make sure I ask him that. It's a very good uh, distinction mm-hmm. there. I have to ask you this, Bachfest. Would you would you stop the presses again if you had it all to do it all over again? You know, I, it's hard. It's hard because there was a lot I didn't know. Um, I didn't know that this was a young girl who had been dealing with body image issues and that this dance was about her really feeling like she was owning her power. I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know she was going to take her top off. I've judged that competition for five years. It's never happened before. Um, I, I work in exploitation, so I work with people who have been victimized, and I'm really sensitive about women taking their top off in environments where people are partying and the party environment and people are drinking. Um, I didn't mean to lash out at her. I wanted to make a point. But this is not an environment where it's conducive or supportive for people to be taking their chops off. You know, I, I believe that, you know, burlesque and all of that stuff where it's artistic and places where people can express themselves in an artistic way, that's all well and good. But in a bar or in an environment where people are drinking, it's just not a healthy situation. 
And so I would do it differently because I probably would have told her. I wouldn't have made it so public because I, I didn't know that her story was one where this was really, really important, psychological development. And for that, I apologize, right? I didn't mean to hurt the girl. I was just saying this is not the environment where this could happen. And in that way, I would have done it differently. Um, I probably would have, you know, if I knew what I know now, um, I would have asked. Um, I would have asked the, and I don't, and I, I don't know that they knew. I would have asked the folks who asked me to judge, is this something I can expect? And if they said yes, I wouldn't have judged. I, I never want to be a part of that type of exploitation, ever. I'm a woman's rights advocate. I protect people who have been trafficked. I protect people who are rape victims, people who have been exploited. Um, and I don't ever want to be a part of somebody's exploitation. And I characterize that as an ex, ex, exploitation because there were a bunch of folks who weren't really looking at the artistry of the dance. You know, they, were, they, they saw boobs, you know. And that's not, a, that's not a good place to have that display, in my opinion. So what I'm hoping to do with this young lady is to sit down and hear her story a little bit more um, and kind of what she's been through and what she's going through and what that dance meant to her. And she I don't up, ever want to be it. Huh? She ended up losing. Like She didn't win the contest, did she? No. Damn, no. Yvette. You sc- <laughs> would, I mean, let me be real. You took her chances for winning. She would, Sasha's she wouldn't queen. Have won any, she wouldn't have won anyway. I mean, there were competitors who were just better. Oh. Um, and that's why. That's well, that why makes it I all better then. That I, really, that I really need to say that. You know what I mean? That's when you have one of those moments where you're like, did I really? I probably shouldn't have said that. But really, I mean, it, it's showing people that your, your elected officials are human. You know, we react just like anybody else. You know, and I was completely shocked. <laughs> so, you know, I think one of the things that I'm learning <laughs> is I've fully transitioned from just a regular human being to somebody where people people see you as an elected official and your words hurt. Did you, you know? think about and it I've first? Gotta, I've got to I've got to realize that that like everything that I say, you know, oh, it's it gonna can hit hurt somebody. Yeah. Did you think about so it first, or did you be, just react like, hell no, nah, this ain't uh, going down? Did you think about it first, or did you just react like, hell no, nah, not while I'm in the house? I, that- I did have a reaction, I got to tell you, <laughs> and it's not normal for me to do that. I think the work that I've been doing, and my own personal experiences too, you know, makes me really sensitive to that kind of situation. And so I'm just a human, and I reacted. I couldn't believe that was happening before me. I don't know if you saw the video. I don't want to encourage people to, to go see it, but I turned my back. I, I was waving no to her when she went to go take her bra off. I'm like, no, no, no. And then when she went to take it off, I turned my back. I walked away. Uh, uh. Because I, I, just, I don't want to be a part of that type of exploitation of a woman. It makes me, um, I don't know, it just makes me concerned and sad. And, um, and, and in the work that I do, like I said, I don't ever want to be. A part of that. Now that's different from burlesque. I didn't know this was burlesque. I didn't know she was burlesque. This is not a burlesque show. Uh, What's the difference so, between burlesque and, hmm? and stripping? What's the difference? Well, I mean, just a so fancy word. Is, it's supposed to be, and I, you know, I don't know a whole lot about it. I've seen some of the some of the videos of the shows. It's a lot more artistry. You know what I mean? It's about. It's like a. It's like a dance performance, but but. Meaning, there's a art, there's a story to it, and there's an artistry about it. Apparently, um, and and then and then the, the 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 lack of clothes is secondary. You know what I mean? So it's, <laughs> okay. it's a little different in my mind. 
Um, the other yeah, my, my mind because too. It's, because it's artistic, because it's artistic, it's not necessarily ex- exploitation. You know what uh-huh. I mean? Women uh-huh. aren't being victimized, which is always my lens. Like, right. I don't want women to be victimized. And, you know, we talked about it here on the show, and that's exactly what I said. Just just from the passion that I remember when we were, you know, fighting, you know, against uh, and have been these taking on these issues about, you know, human trafficking and just the advocacy yeah. from women being taken advantage of and people being taken advantage of. That's what I said to the audience. Like, you know what? She was like, uh-uh. <laughs> no. Well, this is real. I have, I have been a part of rescuing babies from trafficking. 12-year-old girls, 14-year-old girls. That stuff keeps you up at night. And when I saw that, when I saw her up there dancing, that was the first thing I thought. I almost stopped her. And like, I almost literally went and grabbed her. You know, like, I, I'm nobody's mama, but like, I do feel like I'm a lot of people's mama. And, you know, so I, um, so when you, when you are involved in that kind of work, and there have been some that, that I haven't been able to rescue, you know, and that part for me, where we've been doing investigation work and, you know, the FBI says you got to stand down and I don't get to go in the building. You know, our folks don't get to go rescue people. That stuff is heartbreaking to me. Um, and so that's my lens, and that's what I was trying to share with um, with the burlesque population is, look, I'm a human being. I come with a lens, you know, and, and my experience is is that women get exploited a lot um, in this environment and that it's, it's my job and, and our job to protect them from that. The burlesque population? I mean, their population now? I mean, yeah. You know, <laughs> so let me get this straight. Did the burlesque population come after you or something after this? Did you get there flooded with emails? Bit, there was a bit. There was a bit of, you know, wow. hey, women can do whatever they want to do, which I too totally believe um, and support. Um, but that wasn't what I thought I was seeing. So, yes. Okay. And no, don't go look it up. Look it up, Nathan. <laughs> you know I got to now. I know you're going to look it up. I have to now. Well, Eva, it's been a pleasure. One last question. One last question, and I'll let you, yeah. uh, you know, end the, with the audience however you would like to. But one last question. That's about black wealth building. Uh, because you, we don't really call it that, but that's really what needs to be happening here. We talk about jobs, we talk about good paying jobs, we talk about training programs, but a lot of the issues, whether it's gentrification, if black households had more wealth, they could pay to stay in those neighborhoods. So, mm-hmm. I mean, as a mayor, and again, maybe you can't use that term because, you know, these politically charged times and being in a position like that, but I mean, what can we do with any intentionality to build black wealth in, in, in black homes in the city of Cincinnati? Well, we can use those words and we will use those words, right? I mean, black wealth is important, uh, particularly when you got a city that's 50% black, you know, and when black families do well, then our entire city does well. And that's the story we don't tell, right? That it's really in the city's best interest. Uh, for those who need it, need need it, need to hear that way. It's in the city's best interest for black people in our city to do better because the entire city does better. You know, there's a couple fronts to this. One, small business has to be our business, right? We have to get more black folks owning businesses because then you hire people in your community and then you add vibrancy to your own community. That's a big piece of it. We've got to make sure that we get black families in a place where they're starting to understand that buying and owning are two different things. Don't be a customer, be an owner. And everybody buys stuff. If we can get people to say, instead of taking that $4 that I'm going to go and spend at McDonald's for, uh, you know, for my splurge, I'm going to take $4 and I'm going to buy stock in McDonald's. I'm going to own McDonald's. 
When I first got started, I got started investing through, an, an, through a black investment, black women's investment group. And I didn't think I had enough. I'm paying back student loans, I got all this other stuff, to be able to invest. And somebody told me that way. They said, whatever you normally buy, own it. And so we've got to get our kids in a mindset of don't buy Jordan gym shoes, own Nike. <laughs> you know what I mean? Own the company. Um, and so if we can get that started, then we'll have enough folks who are used to investing that we can get folks, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy a building on Reading Road in Roseline. I'm going to buy the block in Roseline. And when we own, now we control. Ownership is about control. So how do we begin to get us in a mindset and get us the opportunities to be able to own and not consume? And we just got to shift that. That's an important thing. One of the hallmarks of my Youth to Work program was our financial literacy program. Not the fact that we had, you know, 700 kids every year who were working and all of those kids were in poverty, but that we got those kids the pledge to save over $200,000 of that, of what they, what they made collectively. We got these kids who were in poverty to see, yeah, you don't have a lot, but if you just take 10% and you put it in a bank account, you'll be a millionaire by the time you're my age. Put a little bit aside. And so... That's where we, you know, I would love to bring back our financial literacy and wealth building platform. Mark Mallory had it, and it got canceled in this administration. I'd like to be able to do that and take it up a notch and really talk about wealth building in our communities. How do we own real estate? How do we own businesses? How do we get involved in investing in new ventures? In this tech world, and there's so much money in tech. We don't have a dollar. We don't have dollars in tech. So I think the big thing is making sure that we teach our, um, our communities that we need to get from, you know, we can move from poverty to stability, from stability to ownership. Now we're on the spectrum. And that's a real important objective for any city that has a majority population that is black. Well, Yvette, again, thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, the Nathan mm-hmm. Ivey Show is broadcast live from the city of Cincinnati. We're an emerging platform. We want to be a voice in the city. And I really appreciate you coming on and spending time with me and my audience. And hopefully we can catch up more uh, before the primary. When is the primary? Yes, that would be great. I'd love to come back. When is the primary, Yvette? The primary is May 2nd, but you don't want to wait that long because early vote starts on April 4th. Okay. If folks are not registered to vote, you have until April 3rd. And then the new early vote location is not downtown. It's in Norwood in the, in the Surrey Plaza. And we have information about that on our website at www.evettsimpson.com. If folks want to come and volunteer, we'd love to have you. We're doing canvassing and phone banking. You want to make a contribution to the campaign, we'll accept that as well. If someone wants to get in contact with you, perhaps uh, they want to maybe work with some of the programs you talked with or talked about this morning, because someone in a chop shop uh-huh. did mention that. How can they contact you? They should contact my council office if they want to be involved in some of our council initiatives. And our um, my email is Simpson at cincinnati-oh.gov, or they can call my office at 352-5260. We're getting ready for a big youth-to-work summer. Uh, we're already planning for our uh, annual um, youth summit, which we do every fall. That is always so much fun. It's getting bigger and better. And we always need volunteers for the work that we do, particularly with our young people. So we love to have people volunteer for some of that work. Have a great day, and thank you for your time. You too. Thank you so much, Nathan. All right. Absolutely. All right. Uh, that's Yvette Simpson. Oh, man, she gave us hella time. Thank you so much. And Chaka, thank you as well.
and uh, she works with Yvette, and uh, she's been posting stuff inside the chop shop. I really appreciate it. Um, man, I mean, if, if you can't get a sense of someone in an hour, uh, no commercials, then, um, well, then I don't know what to say, quite honestly. I mean, of course, we can't get to every question. Uh, even an hour uh, is limited time because there's a back and forth with it. But I think we get, we got a nice, we've got a few dimensions for which us to uh, now further judge Miss Simpson and her campaign. As I said, I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. Okay, I have my personal opinion, and that's only as useful as it is to you. Okay, you might just like to hear another opinion. You might like to maybe bounce your thoughts over another opinion. Or you might not give a damn. Uh, so you have to make your decision for yourself about Miss Yvette Simpson, about Mr. Rob Richardson Jr., and about Mr. John Cranley, the current mayor of the city of Cincinnati. One thing is for certain, only two people are going to move forward to November, and one of them is going to be African-American. So uh, to the degree that matters to you, it matters to you. It may not matter to you, but I think we got a sense. And I'm hoping to catch up with Miss Simpson at least one more time before the primary, before uh, for sure, uh, for sure. And uh, hopefully the same thing with uh, Mr. Rob Richardson Jr. Again, he'll be my guest on Monday at 830 a.m. And uh, I'm going to ask him some of the very same questions. And of course, I'll ask him different questions because he's a different candidate. But the reason why I'm going to do that it's not because I'm trying to take any shortcuts in the process in terms of show prep. I mean, that's the fun part for me, but I'm doing it because if I'm asking similar questions about themes that are in general are important to us, I think it's a more, um, it's a more accurate way to judge people's opinion. So uh, get ready for that. And I will do the same thing uh, with Mr. Uh, Mayor John Cranley on some levels, but again, as the incumbent with him, it's okay to say, listen, boom, you've been in the space for the last four years. You know, why should we give you another shot? So then we can talk more about his record. But uh, I've got Bloomberg Urban Report for those who missed it. And then we'll get more uh, into more superlative flows. This is the Nathan Ivey Show. With the Bloomberg Urban Report, I'm Donna Wilson. Maryland Congressman Elijah Cummins had a meeting with President Trump yesterday about getting prescription drug prices down. He presented him a bill that would let Medicare negotiate prices with drug makers. Meanwhile, Congressman Cummins also discussed HBCUs. He told the president that what black colleges and universities need most is money. The American Medical Association says it won't support the proposed health care plan as drafted by congressional Republicans. The nation's largest physicians group says the proposal is flawed and a threat to coverage for poor and sick people in the U.S. And hiring managers were busy last month. ADP says private employers added 298,000 workers to their payrolls in February. That was the biggest monthly gain in nearly three years. <laughs> the baby is just so beautiful. Mom, this baby is a toddler now. Sammy's into absolutely everything. We've been working on childproofing. That's why we called Budget Blinds to come put in motorized blinds and shades. Those beautiful new window treatments are motorized? Yeah, you just use this remote. See? Oh, that is so great. But what is it have to do with baby proofing? No cords. Nothing for Sammy to grab hold of. Wow, I never thought of that. Yeah, it's more of a necessity than a luxury when you have kids. <laughs> my grandson is beautiful. My daughter is brilliant. And now I need budget blinds to come to my house right away. 
Budget Blinds helps you childproof your home with the luxury of cordless motorized window coverings. And during the Luxury Within Reach event, the more you buy, the more you save with savings up to $2,000. Hurry and call 855-BUDGET-BLINDS now before this offer ends or go online to budgetblinds.com. Don't miss out. Call 855-BUDGET-BLINDS now. Offer good on select products at participating independently owned and operated franchises. Restrictions may apply. Ask for details. That's your Bloomberg Urban Report. I'm Donna Wilson. The Nathan Ivey Show is supported by listeners. Go to www.patreon.com forward slash Nathan Ivey Show and help Nathan keep the show independent. This is the Nathan Ivey Show. Get ready to be engaged. Get ready to be informed. Get ready to be enraged by the man City Bee Magazine called a talk radio rebel. And your host, now back to the show. Behind the mic, but ahead of the curve, welcome back. This is the Nathan Ivey Show. Good morning, choppers. Uh, we just spent an hour with Yvette Simpson. I'm super pumped about the interview. I appreciate the time. I mean, time is very valuable. Very valuable. I appreciate the time. And I appreciate the conversation. Very interesting. What do you think, Choppers? What do you think about Miss Simpson? Here's my number, 513-873-7134. Brian Rice, she's got my vote. And Yvette said, look, I'm not really sure if I do the same thing at Bachfest. It's interesting. She just reacted. Some may say that's a good thing, quite honestly. All right, let's get into some current events, shall we? Uh, later tonight, my plan is I'm going to bring my babies with me tonight. They need to see it. I mean, Junior's two years old. He may not never, re- he may never consciously, cognitively remember it, but he'll feel it. Uh, he was blessed to come to this household. Be my son? Great. He's got to roll with daddy. Daddy's going to Black Agenda tonight. Wifey's out of town. Little Buddha Jr. is coming with me. Uh, so if you're out, say hello. Love to say hello. To all. I love, man, that love running into listeners. And I'm always, uh, quite honestly, humbled. And then just shocked. I'm like, wow, running into people all the time. But, you know, city, the city of Cincinnati is relatively small. Relatively small. But I don't want to miss it. I want to be in the house. Uh, I think it's going to be some really interesting information. And, again, this is what I chose to do. This is what I'm doing right now. And I want to do it to the fullest. Uh, I'm not a half-stepper. So I want to do it to the fullest. And it's just so much information. This is a critical time. This is critical. So if you live in the city of Cincinnati, there's no excuses to not be registered. Now, I know my listeners. My listeners are a reflection of me on many levels. Many of my listeners, and not all of them, but many of them are registered voters. And at the very least, they're active in their communities and are very conscious about what's going on. But if you live in the city of Cincinnati, you still have time to get registered to decide which two individuals that everybody else are going to get a chance to vote upon later this year. And that's a that's a very, very prime position. Let me tell you why. Because numbers show that a lot of people do not step out in primaries. Now, what does that mean? What is that? Why is that important? Well, one way of looking at it is that if less people step out to vote, that means your vote means more. That means your vote has more weight. So you get to determine uh, which two individuals that the entire 
citywide electorate is going to choose from uh, later this year. I think that's powerful. And I think there are some differences uh, in the three uh, folks who will be on the ballot for mayor. I think there are some differences. But again, you have to make a decision based upon, you know, your conscious and what's important to you. Is race important? Is gender important? Is is his is the attitude of the mayor important? Is is the mood of the city important? Is the streetcar slash train? It's a very interesting pivot. He says it's a train. It's a very in a way interesting way of looking at it. Because if you say, listen, do you support a train? Train sound and feels much differently than streetcar. Much differently. For whatever reason, a train sounds more stable, more sturdy. Train to me invokes tethered to the earth. Train is history. I mean, this country was developed by trains, right? But when you say streetcar, that term for some people, man, you might as well say you worship Beelzebub. You you worship Diablo. You worship the devil in the minds of some folks. But again, what's your thoughts? 513-873-7134. We're still together. I'm not going nowhere. <laughs> I'm with you. Streetcar. And what about this subway system? I mean, do you think it's feasible? I mean, do you want to have a conversation about whether we should have a subway system? Uh, what about, should the money be heavily weighted to neighborhoods? Should more money go to neighborhoods? I mean, is it really feasible to hold developers accountable? And if so, then why hasn't it already been done? I did like what she said, though. You know, development should be spurred by the community and not just the the greedy interest of the folks who are doing the development. I mean, I'm not mad at you. I mean, you get into development, you want to make that money. I get it. A conscious one writes, I don't live in the city of Cincinnati, but I am concerned about what goes on because I grew up in five out of the 52 neighborhoods. And of course, we are Cincinnati's 53rd neighborhood, its very first digital neighborhood, uh, the Nathan Ivey Show. And uh, we grow every single day. Every single day. So if you're not registered, please get registered. Do your due diligence. Convince, at least have conversations with the people around you. I got a couple of brothers who I need to uh, speak some gospel to hard-headed though. I look at them sometimes like, damn, did we come out of, out of the same household? <laughs> I look at you sometimes. You don't believe in voting. I don't get it. Uh, let me move on to uh, other matters uh, things that uh, should uh, are uh, on the radar screen. It may or may not be on your radar screen. I'm reading that Remy Ma has extended an olive branch. She says, I'm not proud of Sheether. What? Wait a minute. Everybody else is. She says, I'm not proud of Sheether. Sheether. And I said Bossip's. Uh, Bossip does have a podcast, but so does uh, BuzzFeed. They have a very, very popular podcast titled Another Round. And Remy Ra went on this show and she basically said that you know, she regrets Sheether. Now, how could you regret something that so many people like? Everybody loves Sheether. 
Man, people was in my Facebook page happy about the good old days of hip-hop. The good old days of hip-hop are back again. People are rap battling. If you like rap battles, listen, go on YouTube. Type in rap battles. You can check out some of the greatest rap battlers of the last, man. People have been rap battling for years. Check out Mook. Check out others. I mean, rap battling is there. But people want to see like commercial artists, mainstream artists, rap battle. So I didn't even really wasn't paying attention to it, but it was just I couldn't get away from it because I'm typically on the Internet at all times. Whether you know it or not, because, uh, you know, I'm always looking and, you know, looking for things that are interesting to the audience. So, I mean, I just couldn't get away from it. Oh, did you see you hear Sheether? I mean, somebody even called me and said that I see hear Sheether. I'm like Sheether. Sheether? Man, I didn't give a damn about no damn Sheether, but you know, I'm from the hip-hop generation, so I looked it up, and I listened to it, and you know, it was cool. It was cool. Everybody, I think people made it into something bigger than it really, really was. People really blew that up, because they were like, oh, rap battles are back. The good old days. And Nicki Minaj never responded, which sort of, sort of like put some, I don't know, it just kind of put the fire down a little bit, because it's only a battle of people are going back and forth. If you go to a rap battle and one dude delivers blistering lyrical assaults and the other dude is like, oh, he gets caught caught in a moment and doesn't utter a word. That ain't really a battle. You free. <laughs> That's not really a battle. So Nicki Minaj basically hit her with the Internet stiff arm. Just ignored her. Just ignored her like Buster. And Nicki Minaj now is saying that it's over. She doesn't want to partake in it anymore. She didn't think that people were going to blow it up the way they did. She wasn't really proud of it. I guess she thought she was going to put it out. And, you know, people would talk about it maybe in some circles. But, I mean, it went mainstream. Like I said, it was on daytime television. Ellen was talking about Remy Ma. Now, you know, if Ellen is talking about some damn Remy Ma, it must be mainstream. Matter of fact, they might even, you know, she danced at every the beginning of every show. I think she even like did an intro to the Remy Ma diss of Nicki Minaj. I might be making that up. That would have been funny, though. They're talking about it on the talk. So, you know, it's mainstream. You know what I'm saying? Everybody's talking about it. She says, listen, it's over. And I thought at some point, here we go again, because here we are celebrating 20 years of the death of Biggie. And everybody who knows anything knows that the media helped to, to really burn that fire even brighter and hotter. And it led to a lot of people getting killed. Biggie, Tupac, and other folks. Bodyguards got killed. One of Puffy's bodyguards got killed. They blamed Suge Knight. East Coast, West Coast, right? We love a battle. And here we go again. The media was doing it once again. They were feeding into it. Ooh, what's Nikki going to say? Ooh, what's Nikki going to do? And when somebody gets shot, the media will stand back and say, uh, we didn't mean to. Sorry. Well, damn it, sorry ain't enough. Sheether. Um, but what is your take? Some people are saying Nikki should have responded. I mean, you know, I get it. That would have been an interesting wrinkle. Brenda writes, uh, good interview. I live in Fairfield, but she sounds solid. Brian writes, I've heard Rob and John speak. Yvette's plans are more relatable to my needs and concerns for my city. Mike writes, great interview. Thank you. 
Yvette did most of the talking. Scott writes, great interview. Much enjoyed. Uh, Slogan writes, a great interview. She sounds very solid. Uh, Denise writes, I have enjoyed this interview. Uh, Pat writes, great interview. Eb G writes, Nathan, thank you for this interview. Great interview. Thank you. Uh, Carolyn writes, what's the name of the black women's investment group, Miss Simpson? I think she mentioned it. I hope that you got that because I don't recall. She did sound solid. And I think part of that, and I kind of spoke to it, is that when you've got the experience, when you've been tested, it makes you it makes you stronger. It makes you stronger. You know, when you've been through the fire, you've been through the trenches. I want to know what the hell John Cranley is doing down there. I mean, so many people have told me about this. Uh, Silbach went off on him. That's Chris Silbach, who I'm hoping to catch up with. And if I remember correctly, I think he listens to the show. He told me something. Wait, if you, Chris, if you listen, you told me he's going to hook me up with an interview, man. I'm starting to remember this. Wait a minute. I'll reach out to Mr. Silbach. Because again, not, not only do I want to have the distinction of being the only Cincinnati-based talk show to talk to every member of city council because my plan is to talk to every single one of them. I want to talk to the people who get the endorsements. I want to talk to the people who don't get the endorsements. I want to talk to everyone, at least for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, but also the the various folks, the three individuals who are running for mayor as well. So it should be interesting. If you had to speculate, which two do you think are going to move on? I think most people for, for people believe that the incumbent will be one of those two individuals, barring something happens like another email scandal or something. Barring that, I think that's a pretty safe bet. So that means either Yvette Simpson or Rob Richardson. What did you make, make out of when I asked her whether Rob Richardson asked her to drop out of the race? Not only did I read it, but... You know, I got it from uh, some other sources, several sources. And just from her response, I have to say it's true. I mean, come on now. We all grown. But I will be sure to ask Mr. Rob Richardson Jr. that on Monday at 830 a.m. Again, if you missed the show, the show will be available as a podcast. Scott writes, if I remember correctly, the media created the whole gangster rap label and blew it out of proportion. Then we witnessed the deaths of two talented MCs, right? See, as long as people are going to keep it on wax, as long as it's about the lyrics, that's one thing. But you know how it's going to happen. You know what's going to happen. The first casualty would not be either Remy Ma or Nicki Minaj if there was a real lyrical battle and it turned into a feud and all this kind of stuff. The first casualty is going to be one of the members of the entourage. Some bodyguard in a club late at night takes a bullet that was meant for Nicki Maj or either Remy Ma. You know how this story goes. We've heard this tired narrative over and over again. But what I'm telling you is that I don't know if it's the media or the media giving us what we really want. Because it's easy to say, oh, it's the media. The media did that. I even said that as well. But let's be real here. Let's be real. The media back in the 90s that was helping to fuel the East Coast, West Coast beef was merely giving Americans, really uh, folks, what they wanted. You know, we love the drama. I'm just real about it. I love a little drama. As long as it's not in my house, my bank account, my life, I love the drama. Love it. So people were loving the drama. Remy Ma, you know, born. I mean, hip hop is kind of stale right now. I mean, what's popping right now? Nothing. Drake. So sick of that damn Drake. Light skin revival. What? 
Who's popping right now? Chance the Rapper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a great story, but it's no drama. That's what fuels the media. Drama. Let's keep it real. Uh, Daryl Rice Diddy did a recent interview and he said at the Source Awards where Suge went on stage and took jabs at Diddy. He said he picked up Suge earlier in that day of before the Source Awards from the airport and they were cool. He said he confronted him at an after party after the Source Awards and he said Suge told him he was talking about Jermaine Dupree, LOL. Really? Huh. When he said, you know, if you don't want, if you want to be an artist, you don't want the producer all up in the videos. Trying to be the star. I mean, Puffy was in everything. Puffy was a little bit, uh, it was a little bit irritating because it's like, I want to see Biggie. I want to see Biggie. And I see the video and this Negro dancing around in the glittery shirt. It's like, man, where's Biggie? Yeah. Classic moment of hip hop, right? It's horrible, probably. Sorry. Oh, that was great music. First of all, I'd like to thank God. Second of all, I'd like to thank my whole entire Tempo family on both sides. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. Like to tell Tupac, keep his guards up. We ride with him. And one other thing I'd like to say, any artist out there want to be an artist and want to stay a star and don't want to want to have to worry about the negative producer trying to be all in the video, all on the record, dancing, come to death row. That was great. Oh, man, that was great stuff right there. The beginning of the East Coast, West Coast rival. The feud. And we lost two great artists. Man, could you imagine if Tupac was still rocking it today? Would he have sold out, went mainstream? And I don't hear anybody say that if Tupac was allowed today, he would have started Moonlight. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> Could you imagine Tupac through the Bush years? If you go to NathanIvy.com, you can hear my interview if you missed it with uh, John Potash. He wrote a book in which his theory is that Tupac uh, and many other artists were basically assassinated by the government because the government was afraid that they were going to leave some kind of youth revolt movement, right? That would upset the uh, the paradigm uh, of control and, and, and wealth in this country. Now, I don't know if that's true, but John Potash makes a very compelling argument. He makes a very compelling argument. Daryl Rice, I think Tupac would be in politics if he was alive today. I can see that. Could you see Senator Tupac Shakur? That would have been super dope. Oh, my God. (laughs) Senator Shakur, Tupac Shakur, that would have been super dope. Damn government. You took Tupac. Uh, John Potash is serious about it. Let me, let me, I can go to NathanIvy.com right now, actually, and play a clip for you. You got to check it out. It's a great conversation with John Potash. He's been on the show many times, and I, I told him, man, I mean, you're out there doing some bold, brave stuff. Point fingers at the government for things like this. 
Uh, matter of fact, he's one of the featured guests on the show on the site, so you can check it out very quickly. Five one three eight seven three seven one three four. You know, I want to agree with you, Daryl. I want to agree with you that if Tupac was alive today, he would have been in politics. What about Biggie? Biggie would have been like an older version of uh of uh, Ricky Rose, Ricky Ross. Again, Tupac was much more political. That's why if I had to choose between Tupac and Biggie in terms of greatest rappers, I'm always going with Pac. I like to listen to Tupac. I I mean, I'm sorry. I take that back. I like to listen to Biggie. I like his flows. You know what I'm saying? You can two-step to it as a big man and all that kind of stuff. But I felt Tupac Shakur was different. Tupac was much. And then, you know, Afeni, the whole background, much more political. Uh, Maybe he was a threat. I don't know. You tell me. 513-873-7134. You got me to the bottom of the hour at 9.30 a.m. And uh, I'm going to make this conversation uh, one of the featured conversations on NathanIV.com, as I'm going to do with many of the interviews that we've had, uh, because I want people to be able to have as much access to information as possible. And see, the best scenario would be, okay, you heard Yvette Simpson right on this platform. The best scenario of these you hear on other platforms inside the Cincinnati area. And then you can kind of judge, you know, you know, her thoughts and the same thing with Mr. Rob Richardson and the same thing with Mr. John Cranley, the current mayor of Cincinnati, the city of Cincinnati. That's the best situation when you can hear multiple conversations. You have multiple, uh, you know, points to interface and, and see them talk about these issues, hear them at forums. So, number one, you can see if they consistent in front of different audiences. That's important because you know how people can be. You know, they'll be in a black community and say one thing in some cases. And in some cases, they go over to the West Side and say something else. And I'm not talking about Miss Simpson or Mr. Rob Richardson Jr. or John Crowley in particular. I'm talking about politicians over the years in the city in general. And we know that to be true. So that's why, you know, I think as many opportunities as you can have to hear these folks that want to be in a position of leadership, take it. And with the internet and podcasting, and it's just so many more options available. So many more options available. So, again, thank you so much for listening. This show will be made available as a podcast uh, within the hour, NathanIV.com. And, again, I'm going to uh, edit and feature this conversation with Miss Simpson uh, on the show as well. And you can check it out. You can share it, uh, download it, uh, suggest it to your friends, family members. So they can get a sense of who the candidates are. Uh, before we bounce, though, let me go back here, as I promised. You go to the friends who like, here we go. Yeah, I always want to take your input, choppers, to the show. See what you got here. Ishmael writes, uh, is that fame? Writes, the notorious night Biggie was murdered in Los Angeles. It's a piece on TheUndefeated.com. I had not read it yet, but very interesting. <laughs> Jesse posted. Hold on. We may have to stay a little bit. Jesse posted an article from TNZ with Faison Love. What the hell happened with Faison? I like him, actually. I like Faison Love. I think he's a, I think he's a, he's a decent uh, entertainer. Comedian, right? And he play he plays his role very very well. 
Apparently, he got into it with an airport valet. Hmm, you know me. I love good audio. Got some stuff I want to share anyway. So let me back up here for a second. I don't want to leave prematurely. I don't want to be a preemie, ladies. I didn't really need to say that. I didn't. I, I admit it. I just threw it in there. You're right. All right, uh, here we go. Let me check this out. It's interesting. Hmm. <laughs> Keep it coming, choppers. I love it. And the good folks at TMZ do great work. I find that we typically play a lot of this stuff here on the show. Faison Love refuses to apologize after beating up airport valet. Mm. Now, listen, I don't know if there's any curse words in this because I'm just jumping straight into it. Okay. So uh, a word to the wise is 930. Your kids should be at, uh, well, they should be at school anyway. So you should be listening alone or among other adults. And I'll say this again. Uh Uh-oh. Don't listen with your spouse per se. I mean, only a very strong relationship can survive listening to the Nathan Ivey show. This is from the good folks at TMZ. Stop. 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 Damn, dude just got beat up by Faison Love. Uh oh, here come the popo, and it's a lot of them. He's a celebrity. This guy, he's a celebrity. That is deep. Uh, check out the good folks at TMZ.com. And then Faison Love, I saw this on the first time on, um, I think it was on Worldstar. And he issued an apology via the video. And he apologized after beating up the airport valet. I don't know the backstory. I don't know. He probably deserved it. I mean, if you're a celebrity, you Faison Love, why why would you put that in jeopardy if, if the dude didn't necessarily deserve it? I don't know the circumstances. I'm not saying you should put your hands on people just because. I'm just saying. See, back up here. Uh, Chuck writes, Yvette hit the the streets with the local I-C-E-I-U. I'm riding with her. Can you tell me what that is? S-E-I-U? Please, Chuck. So we can all know. Craig writes, on YouTube, the night Biggie was killed, someone had audio of the shooting. They were filming around the corner. It was very eerie, huh? Jesse writes, that incident with Faison happened at the Columbus, Ohio airport. Yes, I am aware of that. Uh, This ain't really loading fast enough. Hold on, let me go somewhere else here where I know I can get a copy of this. Yes, I'm aware it happened in Ohio. James writes, I would really have loved to ask Ms. Simpson about the waste in these damn gas lights they burn 24 7 and don't throw any light while most cities are going led oh, okay i'm sorry i missed that i missed that but i'll put it on my list i mean you know if it's that serious to you james just just shoot me uh shoot me a text or you can I'll tell you what shoot me a text via facebook a direct message and the next time we have our own Unless there's something that's super, super, super hot that just takes most of our attention, I'll make sure that I ask her that. 
All right. See, uh, Miss D writes, I read that the valet said he was going to spit on Faison. Guess he didn't get a chance to actually spit since the butt whooping came immediately after the threat. LOL. Yeah, that's a good way to get your face destroyed. And that's spitting on a grown man. That's a great way to be in the emergency all day long and all night long. They may, they may have to keep you overnight for something like that. That's a great way to just change the trajectory of your life. And I don't recommend it. <laughs> I really don't. This is phase on the valet. So I'm coming to pick up my car. They said it was a crazy price and they started laughing. And asked me, did I have even, um, that much money for it? I go to get the car and the guy's talking smart. And I'm like, look, bro, I'm a grown man. And then, um, I said it was nine, a thousand dollars or something, something ridiculous. That I, I, I go there all the time to do that. It's never a thousand bucks, even if I leave it two, three months. So then his buddy starts chiming in. I was like, hey, you can't talk to him like that. Um, or I'll put hands on you. I'm like, put hands on me. So then I wouldn't confirm. him. you don't put hands on me, let me get closer. And he says, yeah, I put hands on you. You're a grown man. I put hands on you. Then I, walk, I was about to walk away. And then he, he, he tried to spit on me. So that's why when you see me walk away, he spit, but it missed. And that's why I was like, oh, hell no. And that's when I grabbed him like that. I wish I could say I'm sorry or feel remorse, but sometimes somebody got to get their ass with these kids are are, <coughs> are just run, running rapid. Just they talk crazy to you on on Twitter, and I, they don't understand that Twitter they safe, but in life you can't talk crazy to people, especially the grown folks, and you can't spit on nobody. You can't you can't do none of that imaginary stuff you do online. You don't have to respect me. But just don't ever disrespect me. Because then you're going to get disrespected back. And that's the law of the land. That's uh, from the good folks at TMZ. Well, <clears throat> pardon me, Choppers. Well, um, if in fact what he said is true, then whatever happens to you, happens to you. I ain't got no remorse about it at all. You spitting on people out here? Man, listen. In the in 2017, I don't know what's in your spit. That's a deadly weapon. That's how I would look at it. I'm just telling you straight up. Don't make that mistake. That's a crucial mistake. Mm, mm, mm. I don't think there's a man inside the chop shop that would do anything different. And he's right, though. I mean, because of the age of Twitter and Facebook, and it lets these, these people be anonymous bullies and say these things without a a face-to-face confrontation, it does seem to be a lot more of that going on. It does see. And then the other thing is you got another generation. You got two generations of children raising children with no real parenting skills. So you do have some young folks, some young folks, teenagers running around, and they talk super fly. I've seen it. I have talked super fly to older people. Get with you crazy. And then when you grab them up and put your hands on them, like Ving Rangs did Jody, remember that Jody, little Jody, talking all that jazz. Now you want to call for your mama, mama. That was a great scene. You know I'm looking for the audio. That was a great scene. Uh, Chuck writes, "It's the union for janitors in the Midwest." Okay, thank you for that, Chuck. I did not know, man. Thank you. Uh, looks like Miss D- Miss D was right about it. You know I love a little drama. We can go from Yvette Simmons into to some some ratchetness. Hey, it's radio. 
It's the Nathan Ivy Show. I can't talk about politics every minute of every show. Slogan writes, yep, a lot of people, a lot of folks blur the lines between the fantasy life of social media and real life. Yes, they do. Some of the folks, man, that do a lot of this stuff on social media, they never do this stuff in real life. They would never do it in real life because when you're doing stuff in real life, there can be immediate consequences. And a lot of folks don't like immediate consequences. Uh, let me jump around a few more places before we we roll this morning. Um, uh, the latest we'll go this morning is up until 10 a.m. And we mess, we just may go that far. But I just want to get a sense of what's popping like I said, this is a daily show, Monday through Friday. And every single day, I want to give you a sense of what's happening in the city, in the region, in the nation, in the world, in the universe, if it's relevant. OK, and I just want to jump around a bit because we've been focused on just a couple of topics. And I want to get a chance to see uh, if there's any breaking news, right? Quite honestly. All right. I mean, a lot of the news in the daily cycle, the national level is about Obamacare, the Russians. I mean, there is so much smoke emanating from the Trump administration that it's kind of like you really don't know where to focus on. And that could be done purposefully. And if it is, that is a highly skilled practitioner of the art of politics in the 21st century. But something tells me this is just a, a series of blunders by America's first Gilligan uh, uh, president. We had a chance to make history, either the first female president or the first clown president. And unfortunately, America chose the latter. So here's another example. The White House is now preemptively attacking the CBO, the Congressional, um, what is it? The Congressional Budget Office. They are nonpartisan and Whenever there's a policy or a bill or a new law, the CBO will analyze it and they give unbiased, nonpartisan numbers, data uh, about what they think the impact of certain ideas are going to be. So, for instance, all through the process of Obamacare, the CBO was front and center in a lot of news articles because of their analysis. And now the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, is about to judge uh, Trump care. Ryan care. Uh, have you in look at, I want to call it Trump care. Why not? And a lot of people are, are they're going to be judging it to see whether it's going to cost more the impact of the deficit. Is it going to do what the Republican leadership says it's going to do? How many people are going to be left uninsured? So they haven't done the analysis yet. And already the white house is attacking it. Sean spicy says, quote, their record is what I'm calling into question. When you look at the number of people in the cost on what they scored the last Obamacare bill, it's way off. So here they are criticizing the analysis of the CBO before the CBO really gives their analysis. Now, why do you think they're doing that? I think they're doing it. And by they, I mean the Trump administration. I think the Trump administration is doing it for the same reason that the Trump administration is is talking about fake news. They're trying to kill the messenger before the messenger delivers the message. So before the CBO can say, you know what? Trump care sucks. They want to discredit Trump care. Now, the director of the CBO. Is a Republican appointee. <laughs> it's appointed. The guy running it now it was appointed by Trump. 
So what does that mean? That means that anything could be sacrificed on the almighty altar of making Donald Trump look good. James writes, 200 pounds of weed in a dispatcher's basement equals Gilligan. Hmm, yeah, you're right. About that. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale. A-, a, a sad tale of a woman that let her boyfriend ruin her career. This woman was a 10-year, has spent 10 years working with the city. And then, as I understand it, the 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 DEA was tracing the drugs as it came into the city, and boom, Went to her house and she had, see, I read it was 600 pounds at some point, James, but somewhere between 200 and 600. And now your career is over with and you're talking about it wasn't mine. Uh, That doesn't play too well. Doesn't play too well. Listen, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. The Nathan Ivey Show will be available as a podcast within the hour. And thank you so much for your support. And shout out to Yvette Simpson for her time this morning. I really appreciate it. Live, local, and vocal. I'll be back with you at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. And again, don't forget, at 8.30 a.m. on Monday, if you miss tomorrow's show, Rob Richardson Jr., I'll be in contact with the mayor's office uh, this afternoon. And I'll let you know when we can secure that interview. Until then, shout out to my good friends at SoulPublicRadio.com. It's the first affiliate of Nathan Ivey Show. And if you're listening during uh, via Soul Public Radio, uh, thanks for checking out the podcast. Join the live show. Shout out to my new friends, the X Squad Affiliates. You can find their podcast on Spreaker. Uh, just go to the search menu and type in uh, X Squad Affiliates. A shout out to the good folks at Superlative Media. Black owned, by the way, uh, for the great work they do. And thank you to uh, Team and I, the Choppers, and my patrons. Until next time, I'm out.